Okay, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Four Gospels written by eyewitnesses to the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, of course, was an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness. Mark came later in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, whereas Luke, I believe, was one of the 70 that followed the Lord all of his life. And uh, Luke's Gospel is the largest book in the New Testament. A very special book because Luke was a physician and uh, Dr. Luke is very interested in Mary not only for the fact that she was a young lady who gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I date, or I should say I age Mary between 12 to 15 when she gave birth to the Lord Jesus. But I put her nearer to 15 than she would have been to 12. He's going to trace Mary's uh, genealogy back to the first man, Adam. And I'll discuss that when I get to the latter chapters. But for this special recording for End Times Coming Radio... I want to start, if I may, in Luke chapter 1, always start at the very beginning, and as always this will be a very simple verse-by-verse -verse Bible study, taken uh, directly from the King James Bible, I have no notes, and uh, above all I hope that uh, this recording, this broadcast, will be a blessing to anybody that should hear it, but above all I hope you are listening along with, with me, with the King James Bibles open. Luke chapter 1, let's start, if we may, in verse 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth an order, a declaration of those things, which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theopolis, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things, wherein thou hast been instructed. Verse 1, he says, many have taken in hand to write down things which have occurred. In reference, I believe, to Matthew, Mark, John, the Pauline epistles, and the rest of the New Testament. Luke's Gospel was written about 70 AD, after Peter and Paul had died, but before John had written his Gospel. What we can say for sure is that nothing was written which would have been inspired by the Lord and subsequently lost. The Lord wouldn't inspire something to later be lost. Yes, it's possible that people wrote down what they saw and heard about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, after he died, of course, but their writings were not inspired. Everything that we have in the Word of God has been inspired and preserved. But above all, Luke is focusing, I believe, on Matthew's Gospel, written about 40 AD, Mark's Gospel, written about 60 AD, uh, the Pauline Epistles, all written pre-65 AD, and of course John would be writing his Gospel and his epistles, and the book of Revelation much later. But Luke says in verse 2 and 3, how he had perfect understanding of all these things, because he was, I believe, one of the 70. And uh, he says that uh, from the beginning, verse 2, they had received the message from the Lord Jesus Christ through eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Meaning the apostles, of course. The apostles wrote down what they saw and heard. They were commissioned to do so. And Luke as one of the 70, was also an eyewitness. He saw everything from the very beginning, and therefore he was qualified to write down what he saw. Unlike the Quran, written by one man, the New Testament was written by many authors living on different continents over a period of many different years. The entire Bible has been written by about 40 authors living on three continents over 1,600 years apart. So collusion is totally impossible. But the New Testament primarily was written by eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can trust it totally and without any concern whatsoever. Theopolis, 
uh, was obviously a very important person to have this gospel written to him. No doubt he'd come to, her, to, come to hear the Lord Jesus and wanted to know more about the God-man, Christ Jesus. And uh, Dr. Luke, as I say, was a physician who addressed this wonderful piece of writing to him. And we are told by the Greek scholars that uh, Luke is the richest in all the Greek writings of the New Testament. Verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They weren't sinless. They were blameless. They had spotless testimonies. The law is given to sinners to point them back to the Saviour. This elderly couple were very godly, and uh, they had a good testimony. Go back to the Old Testament, you come across Abraham and Sarah, a similar couple. Look at verse 7. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were well now stricken in years. Again, it mirrors Abraham and uh, Sarah, and from them, of course, came Isaac, who is a forerunner for the Lord Jesus Christ. This couple are going to give the world John. John the Baptist, of course. Verse 8. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God, in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Old Testament temple, pre the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything was done through the temple. Today, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the moment we are born again. Man or woman makes no difference. The moment we have received the new birth, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, this is pre the new covenant. This is pre the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the most part, the Lord did everything via the temple, via the priests, via the rituals and animal sacrifices. Look at verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That term, angel of the Lord, back to the Old Testament, always refers to Jesus Christ. And I'll come back to this mention of the angel of the Lord shortly. But here, this is an angel of the Lord. Not the angel, but an angel of the Lord. Verse 12. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Quite natural. If you were to come into contact with something supernatural, you would quake, you would shake. When the Lord Jesus Christ came up out of the tomb, it says that the keepers shook for fear. They became as dead men. All this talk about uh, rebuking UFOs and uh, anything that's, you know, subhuman and standing in the presence of God and telling him how great you were when you died is ridiculous. You'd be absolutely terrified and petrified. Verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Very much like Abraham and Sarah, and also Hagar, when she runs off away from Sarah's cruelness, the Lord finds her, the angel of the Lord, being Jesus Christ, and he even says to Hagar, or Hagar, you will call the child Ishmael. But here Zacharias is fearful, which is quite normal, and the angel says, don't worry, everything's going to be okay, you will bring forth a son and call his name John. They've been praying for a son, they're an elderly couple, past the age of childbirth, and a miracle is about to occur. Verse 14, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. 
and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Who came to earth 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ, and here Dr. Luke tells us that John's ministry was to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God, Jehovah God. Once again, in reference to Jesus Christ being God. Verse 17, and he should go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. If you missed it in the previous verse, you couldn't miss it here. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not Elijah per se. There's no reincarnation here, but he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, meaning his ministry is going to be similar to Elijah meaning that Elijah could quite possibly be one of the two witnesses in the tribulation. But here, John's ministry is to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of their Lord, Jehovah God, coming, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. 18. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife, well, stricken in years. It's a fair question. The party age of childbearing, and yet the angel is going to rebuke him for this, because he is a priest. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. Look at 19. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to shew thee these glad tidings. Gabriel, uh, Michael, among the top angels of the Lord, and they are sent to deliver messages. Important messages. And it says here that I stand in the presence of God. He has a continual standing in the presence of God. 20. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Again, he should have known better, hence why he's now being struck down with dumbness. 21. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marvelled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them, and remain speechless. You can just imagine it. This man may be 60, possibly 70 years old, been serving the Lord all of his life, been praying with his wife for many years for her to be given a child because there was a stigma involved for women that didn't have children in this generation. And now he's being struck down with dumbness because he questioned the Lord. His faith should have carried him. He should have understood that with the Lord, nothing is impossible. And now he's going to remain speechless up until the birth of the uh, man called John. John the Baptist. 23. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my approach among men. Stigma, like I say, and possibly she was worried she may even lose a child, perhaps. So she's going to hide herself away until she gives birth. 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel again is now being sent to proclaim the arrival of the Son of God. And I want to tie that in with a cross-reference, if I may, uh, in Matthew chapter 1. Please turn and keep one hand in Luke 1 and go to Matthew chapter 1. Like I say, the angel Gabriel has been sent to Mary as he was to Zacharias, but in Matthew chapter 1, it says very clearly uh, in verse 
20, Matthew 1, 20, But while he, Joseph, thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel of the Lord is deity. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph to announce the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Mary is going to be told this wonderful news by Gabriel. Interesting, because the Catholic Church believe that Mary is the Queen of Heaven. They believe she is almost up there with deity. And yet here Dr. Luke makes it very clear how Gabriel went to see Mary to proclaim the soon arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas Joseph was qualified, he was permitted, if you will, to receive the angel of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is deity, but more specifically, it's Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. But maybe more on that on another broadcast. Back to Luke, please. Chapter 1, verse 28. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favoured. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed are you. Happy are you among women. The Lord is with you. You found great favour. You are greatly beloved. That's it. Mary was a recipient of grace, not a dispenser of grace. 29. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Of course, she too would have been apprehensive, somewhat nervous. But again, she's a child. She's about 15 years old. So the angel Gabriel treats her differently to how he treated Zacharias, who's much older. Look at verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus, meaning Jehovah saves. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him a throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is primarily in reference to the second coming. But of course we're looking at this written about 5 BC, pre the first coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is a literal king with a literal kingdom, but he says later on in the, in the word of God that his kingdom is not yet of this world. So for here and now he has a spiritual kingdom, but when he comes back he will have a physical kingdom. A king has to have a physical kingdom. A king has to have a physical land. That, of course, being the millennial reign. Look at 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Again, she's 15. She's a young girl. Like many of her generation, she's been hoping that perhaps one day she would be chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, the Son of God. But, of course, she gave birth to the Son of Man, not the Son of God. So you cannot call Mary the mother of God. She is the mother, or she was the mother, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a fair question. How can this be? I don't know a man. You know, I've been keeping myself pure for the right man to come along. And it says in verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. No sexual intercourse took place here, unlike what the Mormons would have you believe. The Holy Spirit came upon her. And by the word of the Lord, she was able to conceive. The Lord God spoke the universe into creation. And he came upon her. He overshadowed her. And she was able to fall pregnant. Nothing whatsoever to suggest any kind of sexual intercourse here. As I say, unlike what the Mormons would have you believe. Verse 36. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. 
and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. That should be underlined in every Bible in the world. For with God nothing whatsoever shall be impossible. Also in reference to the new birth, he can save anyone the moment they believe on him and receive him. But here this is primarily in reference to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the immaculate conception. Mary was not immaculately conceived. She was a sinner like everybody else was and will be and has always been. But uh, the Lord chose her through foreknowledge, knowing that she would be able to receive this special calling to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. That's submission and humility. She could, in a sense, have said, No, I can't do this. The stigma's going to be awful. People are going to accuse me of all sorts of wicked things. But she said, No, let it be according to the will of the Lord. 39, And Mary rose in those days and went into the hill country with haste, into a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias, and saluted Elizabeth. That word salute, we think of it today as something which a soldier does when he salutes an officer or vice versa. But it's simply Old English for greeting. She greeted Zacharias and Elizabeth. She's excited. She wants to get there. She wants to see her cousin Elizabeth before she gives birth to John the Baptist, who was the greatest, according to the Lord Jesus, of all men up until the moment of the kingdom of God. Post the kingdom of God, I believe that Paul was the greatest that ever lived. Look at verse 41. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth had heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice, and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. The babe, baby, human being, not a product of conception, a child made in the image of God. And again it says here, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 43. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Her Lord was Jehovah God. And she says in verse 43, What is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Once again in reference to the deity of Christ. Mary is about to give birth to Jehovah God. Not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, but uh, God the Son. But more specifically, the Son of Man. Again, the difference here is that Jesus is eternal. As the Son of God, he's always existed. But as a Son of Man, he came into the world around 4 B.C. And, of course, his dual nature here goes back to Mary being filled with the Holy Ghost, which means she's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What she's saying here is inspired, and she is witnessing, or giving witness, testifying, if you will, that Mary is carrying Jehovah God in her womb. And also from 42, she speaks with a loud voice. Two things to say about that very quickly. Demon-possessed people speak with a loud voice, but also spirit-filled people speak with a loud voice. And uh, this is why... To be careful with the spirits because uh, unclean spirits can counterfeit the spirit of God and uh, lead people down a dangerous path. Verse 44, for lo, as soon as a voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped my womb for joy. Again, this is a child made in the image of God, not a product of conception, not a fetus, a child. Twice, Dr. Luke makes this very clear because he was a physician. And uh, anybody who's, who suggests that a child before they are born is not a child or somehow that abortion is justified before a mother gives birth is in grave error. Verse 45, And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit 
hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and here Mary is simply affirming what we all know, that we are all sinners, and that we are all in need of a Saviour. Verse 48, For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Meaning greatly beloved, meaning something special, which of course she was. She was called from among thousands of women to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, she was chosen from many girls of her generation. And she says in verse 46, how her soul magnifies the Lord. What a wonderful girl she must have been. 49, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name. She's filled with the Holy Spirit too. She's 15 years old. Look at the next few verses. You can't help but notice how she too has been filled with the Holy Spirit. I know the text doesn't tell us that. It tells us how Mary and Zacharias were filled with the Holy Spirit, especially Zacharias, which we'll look at next time. But here she's now going to roll out the praise and glory of the Lord. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath shewed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and it exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months, and returned to her own house. Now Elizabeth's full time came, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbours and her cousins heard how the Lord had shewed great mercy upon her, and they rejoice with her. You can just imagine it. This elderly couple giving birth to John, like Abraham, and Sarah did with Isaac. Look at verse 59. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias, after the name of his father, which would be the best thing to do, because his father was called Zacharias. But that's not what they were told to do by Gabriel. Look at 60. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table, and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marvelled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed. And he spake, and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what man of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And I'll close in verse 66. Uh, and next time we will continue on in verse 67 to complete this amazing first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. But I'll say this just in the, in the remaining minutes of this broadcast, if I may, how you've just discovered something quite amazing. John should have been called after his father, Zacharias. But of course, he was told very clearly to be called John. And all these Jewish names all have meanings, of course. And John means Jehovah hath been gracious. Elizabeth means God is my oath. And uh, Zacharias means Jehovah is renowned. All these names have meaning. Jesus, of course, means Jehovah saves. But I guess my overall feeling or thoughts for chapter one of the Gospel of Luke is how Mary was chosen to bring forth the Son of God. And she received it purely by faith. And by his arrival into the world, the earth was never the same. Okay, so just before I conclude this broadcast from Luke chapter 1, I need to make a quick correction if I may. It was actually Elizabeth who was filled with the Holy Spirit 
and how she prophesied concerning the fact that her cousin Mary was going to give birth to the saviour of the world. Her cousin was going to give birth to the saviour of the world who would be saving Mary, his own mother, and Elizabeth, her cousin, and Zacharias, her husband. What an amazing blessing that must have fallen on this family. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth, of course, and she's praising the Lord. She's proclaiming the fact that Mary is the mother of her Lord, being Jehovah God, of course. But Mary also said in verse 47 how she rejoiced in the fact that God was her saviour. Just imagine it for a moment, how this young girl of 15 years old is going to give birth to the saviour of the world, who's going to save her from her own sins later in life. Amazing. And also let me say this, please, if I may, that sometimes Muslims will try to justify the fact that Muhammad marrying Aisha is the same as Mary giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ when she was 15 years old. The two are not even remotely the same. Muhammad was in his 50s when he married, quote-unquote, Aisha, who was six years old, and consummated the marriage, quote-unquote, when she was nine years old. But here Mary was 15 years old when the Holy Spirit came upon her. And like I said, the Lord spoke the universe into creation, and here he simply overcame her. He overshadowed her. Her pregnancy was completely supernatural without any sexual intercourse whatsoever. So for Muslims to somehow justify Muhammad being in his 50s, marrying Aisha, who was 6 to 9 years old, is shameful. Mary was 15 years old, and like I say one more time, no sexual intercourse took place whatsoever. But next time we will conclude Luke chapter 1 in verse 66. Okay, so moving on through Luke chapter 1. And last time we ended in verse 66. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. John the Baptist was greatly beloved, like Daniel, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel. In fact, John the Baptist in many ways is like Jonathan, who loved David very much, who was prepared to die for David. Whereas John the Baptist did die for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. From the moment John was born to the moment he died, he was chosen, he was earmarked out for something very special. He publicly proclaimed the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course he baptised the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry was to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of their Messiah. When he was martyred, you can imagine how many more people turned to the Messiah, to be saved. He was remarkable. He was the Lord's cousin. David was greatly beloved by Jonathan. No bloodline connection between the two of them, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ and John the Baptist were of the same family line. Please go back to verse 41. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice, and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. She's filled with the Holy Ghost, and she's proclaiming something remarkable. But the baby in her womb, being John the Baptist, is leaping for joy. There's a special connection here. There's a bond between John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. 43. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
As I said last time, Elizabeth was a Jew and her Lord was Jehovah. Here she is affirming through the Holy Spirit in verse 41 that Jesus Christ is Jehovah. Look at verse 44. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. That's the second time we are told how John the Baptist responded to Mary's arrival, but more specifically to Jesus Christ, who is yet to be born. 45. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now I've deliberately gone back to these verses to read them again, because I think it's very interesting from verse 41 how we are told explicitly how Elizabeth is speaking through the power of the Holy Ghost in reference to Mary's soon-to-be arrival of the Messiah of Israel. The Holy Ghost has told Elizabeth through direct prophecy, through direct revelation, how Jesus Christ is soon to be born. For those of us living today, there are no direct revelations via the Holy Ghost. We have the written word of God. But here Elizabeth has been told directly from God that her cousin is going to give birth to the Son of God. Quite remarkable direct revelation, which occurred many times throughout the Old Testament, but here in reference to Elizabeth. And so I say one more time, as far as I am concerned, this bond between John and Jesus is the same as David and Jonathan. But John the Baptist paid with his life in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas Jonathan, albeit he did die with his father's soul, did not die directly for his love of David. And of course David is a type of Christ. And one thing we certainly cannot get from any of these verses is how Elizabeth is somehow worshipping Mary. She's not. As I said last time, Mary was a recipient of grace, as was Elizabeth, as was Zacharias. She was not, therefore, a dispenser of grace. She was simply a recipient of grace. And verse 47, one final time, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Her Saviour being Jesus Christ, her Son. So let's conclude Luke chapter 1. And please remember the main theme so far is that of prophecy. Not foretelling the future, but primarily in reference to praising the Lord. Now it's Zacharias' turn to prophesy, to proclaim, to praise the Lord God. And like some of what Mary told us from verses 49, yes, there are some references to eschatological events, but primarily it is Elizabeth and Mary and Zacharias' turn and time to praise the Lord. Verse 67, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, 
in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Where Mary finished in verse 55, Zacharias has continued on up until verse 75, covering the first coming and the second coming. But much of this is in reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ has saved Israel from their sins and also from her enemies. Her enemies, very much in reference to the second coming, her sins very much in reference to the first coming. Verse 76, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet unto the way of peace. Prophet of the Highest, Son of the Highest. Once again you see the connection, you see the similarities between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. The day spring from on high has visited us, in reference to Jehovah God. Once again the deity of Jesus Christ is firmly found here. 77 to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Jesus, in Hebrew, means Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation. And 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's also called the Prince of Peace. Verse 80. And the child grew, and waxed strong in spirits, and was in the deserts to the day of his shewing unto Israel. John the Baptist came in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah, of course, but his ministry was very similar to Elijah, as was his personality, as was his apparel. But the bond between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ goes right back to the time of Elizabeth being pregnant. Many years went by until John laid eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 1. By that stage they were both 30 years old. And yet John the Baptist knew that the man coming towards him to be baptised was his cousin, Jesus Christ. And the price that John paid to follow his cousin cost him his life. Nothing has changed since the first century. If you are a born-again Bible-believing Christian, following the Lord Jesus Christ, it will cost you something to publicly proclaim your faith in him. If you live in the Middle East and you are bold concerning your love and faith for the Lord Jesus Christ, it will cost you something. John the Baptist refused to compromise and was put to death for his ministry. And Jesus Christ said he was the greatest man that ever lived. Because he preached about Jesus Christ. He publicly proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Through John's ministry, the kingdom of God was opened up. John was the first martyr in the New Testament. The bond between John and Jesus is found so clearly 
in verses 41 down to 44. The babe, the baby, the child, leaped in his mother's womb. He rejoiced at the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those that believe in abortion, please reconsider it. The Lord here has taken great care to make it very clear to us how this baby, this child, leaped in its mother's womb. This child was alive. This child was made in the image of God. This child was not a product of conception, and this child was not a fetus. So that will conclude my look at Luke chapter 1. A very simplistic approach going through this marvellous gospel. And like I said in the opening broadcast of this Bible study, Dr. Luke, I believe, was one of the 70, so he was qualified to write his gospel. Matthew was an apostle. John was an apostle. He says in verse 2, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Meaning the apostles, of course. The apostles wrote the New Testament and passed their writings down to be read and shared. Everything in the New Testament was written down pre-70 AD, excluding John's Gospel, excluding the Book of Revelation. Whereas the Quran was written down 200 years after Muhammad died. Not by one man that knew him, not even by two men that knew him, not even by three men that knew him. The writers of the Quran did not even know Muhammad personally, but the writers of the New Testament lived with the Lord Jesus Christ. They walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, and all but one died for the Lord Jesus Christ. So my friend, if you are listening to this broadcast, and you are not saved, please get down on your knees and cry out to Jesus Christ to save you. Trust in him and believe on him in order to be saved. He died in your place. He took the full penalty of your sin on himself. He came to be your saviour, not your judge. And the Bible promises us the moment we believe on him and trust in him, we have been saved and set free from our sins. Zacharias told us this in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Yes, he's referring primarily to Israel at this point in time, but John chapter 1 tells us, to as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become as sons of God. We too become his people the moment we believe on him. But here in verse 77, this salvation is universally in reference to Israel. But like I say, the moment you believe on him, you too become his people, and you too can be saved, because the day spring from on high has visited us. One more time in reference to Jehovah God, to give light to them that sit in darkness. You are in darkness until you are born again. But the Son of God has come to set you free from sin and darkness. To guide your feet into the way of peace. Okay, so one final verse to comment on before I conclude. Luke chapter 1, and it's verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. That's a pretty broad verse. 
and it goes back to the Old Testament, it goes into the New Testament, it goes throughout church history, and it goes ultimately into the Great Tribulation. Anti-Semitism is nothing new. John the Baptist was hounded by Herod, who was a Gentile, and behind anti-Semitism is Satan, of course. His ministry is to quite simply eradicate all of the Jews around the world, hence why the Second World War took six years to defeat. He knows that his time is limited, and he knows if he can annihilate the Jews, he will be able to stop Jesus Christ coming to earth. He failed the first time. He tried to do so in Bethlehem with the slaughter of the innocents. He tried again with the taxation, which we will look at in chapter 2. And he also tried on the cross, 30 AD. It was unsuccessful. Like I say, he knows his time is limited. His ministry really is to thwart the Lord's purpose for Israel. But since the crucifixion of the Lord, the Jews have gone from country to country, nation to nation, wandering in the darkness, without a temple, without an atonement for their sins. They are very much under the judgment of God. But this term, how they will be saved in the future from their enemies, really is in reference to salvation in the Great Tribulation, which will then be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. We know from the epistle to the Romans that the Lord is not finished with Israel, how he still loves Israel and how he has a plan for them. Some of those Jews will be saved during the Great Tribulation and they will go on to rule and reign with him in the millennial reign. But for here and now, we the church are God's people and therefore it's down to us to pray for the Jews. It's down to us to make them jealous of the Lord Jesus Christ. The flip side to this, of course, is the problem of replacement theology, which goes back to the 4th century when Augustine decided that the church, as it was in those days, had replaced the nation of Israel, which is, of course, nonsense. The church has only temporarily replaced Israel, but Israel per se, Israel as a nation, has not been replaced by the church. Replacement theology, as I say, started with Augustine and it was picked up by the reformers because they had been pretty much indoctrinated from day one as Catholics with this poisonous teaching of replacement theology. So Augustine founded it, Calvin continued it, and 500 years later, most of the churches around the world still hold to replacement theology. It's not a form, as far as I am concerned, of anti-Semitism. And here, Zacharias under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is praying, he is waiting patiently for deliverance from the enemies of Israel. It's so easy to fall into this trap of anti-Semitism if you're not careful. But Paul mourned, Paul was prepared to be accursed for his people. He wanted them to be saved. All of the New Testament church leaders were Jewish. The Bible was written by Jews. So for those of us which are born again, for those of us which love the Lord Jesus Christ, it should be impossible for any of us to ever be anti-Semitic. But above all, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, was Jewish, born of the tribe of Judah. And I'll get to the genealogies later in the book of Luke. So be careful here, because as I say, Zacharias, speaking under the authority of the Holy Spirit, is prophesying, he's focusing on a day in the future where Israel will be saved from all their enemies 
and from the hand of all that hate us. Enemies is one thing, to hate them is something else. And of course, Israel's number one enemy in the world today is Islam. I mentioned the Quran a few times throughout this two-part study from Luke chapter 1. Because Muslims are divided on many fronts, but they are united when it comes to their hatred of Israel. And they have no understanding that their hatred is born not just in anti-Semitism, but also in Satanism. The Third Reich tried to destroy Israel and failed. Joseph Stalin tried to annihilate many Jews in Russia and he too failed. The Jews have been given a special right to be on the face of the earth. They were chosen from among all of the nations in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. And the Lord has a love for the Jews which even the church to some extent doesn't quite understand. But so you must be very careful never to fall into the trap of anti-Semitism. Replacement theology, I still believe this, I'll say it one more time, is a problem which many Christian groups have fallen into, how the church, they say, has replaced Israel. And that too puts pressure on Israel. It robs them of their right to be called the people of God. The Third Reich, as I say, Islam and other groups have also been very vocal over the years at uh, trying to denigrate the Jews. As has the Catholic Church for many centuries, they were very brutal to Jews around the world. But uh, if you're born again, you should be praying for Israel, you should be praying for Jews, and you should be witnessing to Jews. And I'll say this also, don't sit on your hands when you meet a Jew. That man or that woman may be Jewish, but they need to be born again. If they're not born again, they will go to hell, like a Muslim or a Hindu or a Catholic or a Freemason. They must be born again, like you were, like I am. Okay, well, I think I've said enough for Luke chapter 1. The whole purpose of this concept of verse-by-verse Bible teachings is to reach the average man and woman around the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not religious people. I'm not here to debate anyone. I'm not interested in getting into doctrinal discussions. My sole purpose is to present the word of God verse by verse, which can be understood by any man or woman whose heart has been opened and prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive the truth. This is a non-scripted Bible study. I said this from the beginning and I'll say it again. I have no notes here. So as I go through the Gospel of Luke, if I make any mistakes, please forgive me. If I mispronounce any words, please forgive me. If I omit any words or even include any words, please forgive me. Uh, what I will do, I will play back what I've recorded and where necessary, make some insertions, drop in additional audio recordings. But for the most part, this will be a live verse by verse, chapter by chapter recording for the book of Luke. And I hope you're all following along with me with your Bibles open. Don't take my word as gospel truth. Take the Bible as the gospel truth. Go to the scriptures, open it and read along with me. Because I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong and you're not checking me out in light of scripture, you too will be wrong as well. That's not the purpose of this ministry. That's not why I do what I do. I'm trying to assist those that are saved to grow in grace and those that are not saved to come to the knowledge of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But one final time from verse 71, they will be saved from their enemies and all that hate them. 
pray for Israel. You are blessed when you pray for Israel. Witness to Jews as and when you can. And if you hold to this awful doctrine of replacement theology, turn from it and repent of it. Don't steal the promises given to the Jews and apply it to the church. It's abhorrent and the Lord will hold you accountable for that. Okay, well, I think I've said enough for this broadcast. This will be a second of a two-part study from Luke chapter 1, running at 30 minutes apiece, going through the entire book of Luke. But for now, 80 verses conclude Luke chapter 1. This is a huge book. It will take me several weeks to complete. But Lord willing, by the time it's finished and it has been uploaded to the internet and sent out to radio stations to be aired, it will be a blessing to all its recipients. Uh, so, above all, study, 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 and the Lord will do the rest. Thank you, and Maranatha. Luke chapter 2 And it came to pass in those days, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed. The whole of the Roman Empire was vast, and taxation in those days, as it is today, was very lucrative. But no doubt behind Caesar's decision to tax the world was Satan. Mary was heavily pregnant at this stage, and the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been very strenuous to make. So once again, he's trying to attack the Lord's Messiah. Verse 2. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Syria also came under his jurisdiction, and uh, today Syria is uh, run by Islamists, whereas Israel is run by Democrats. 3. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. This was compulsory, of course, and like I say, to have a worldwide census around 4 or 5 BC was quite amazing due to the distance that many people would have had to have travelled to get back to their hometowns. But like I say, Satan, as always, is behind world governments, and he's trying to destroy, he's trying to overthrow, he's trying to thwart the Lord's purpose for bringing his Son into the world. 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. In biblical times, to be engaged to another party was the same as being married to that party. Even though at this time the marriage had not been consummated, an engagement had taken place through a wedding feast, not a ceremony. Verse 6. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. In reference to Micah chapter 5. Satan may be behind all of the world governments, but behind Satan is God. And he wants the Lord Jesus Christ to be born in Bethlehem, to fulfill Micah chapter 5. And he's done that through Caesar Augustus, verse 1. An unsaved, pagan, paedophile, infidel. And behind Caesar Augustus is Satan, of course. Verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. They had to go to Bethlehem, as I say, to register, to pay their taxes, to have the census take place. But at the same time, she wasn't really ready. She wasn't prepared to give birth in Bethlehem. She was from Nazareth. 
but the Lord always being sovereign, always being loving, always being prepared to go the extra mile for his chosen few, opened a door in a manger to give birth to the Son of God. How ironic is that? Verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. These shepherds are going to be the first to see the newborn Saviour. Not the three wise men found in Matthew chapter 2, but shepherds, which is very much a picture of the rapture as well. This intimate gathering to worship the newborn king pictures the return of the Lord just for his church. Whereas in Matthew chapter 2, with the arrival of the three wise men, with a huge armed escort, very much pictures the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the great tribulation. These shepherds could have been out all year round watching over their flock, but I will say this, that I don't believe that Jesus Christ was born on December the 25th. But look at verse 9. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel of the Lord, in reference, I believe, for this dispensation to be the Holy Spirit. The glory of the Lord in reference to the Shehina glory. 10. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. There's that word again, joy. We saw it very clearly in chapter 1, verse 44, how the babe, in reference to John the Baptist, leaped in his mother's womb for joy. Joy that the Lord Jesus Christ was in the same room. This, of course, is supernatural. We can't understand it, but we are told to believe it nevertheless. This great news for all people, found in chapter 2, verse 10, is simply in reference to the atonement. The atonement is universal, but it only benefits those who appropriate it, meaning only those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And for those people, this is great news indeed. Look at verse 11. Front you was born this day in the city of David, a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. What an amazing statement to make to everyday shepherds, just ordinary people going about their everyday business. And here the angel of the Lord, being the Holy Spirit, is proclaiming that this day around 4 BC in Bethlehem, in the city of David, a saviour is going to be born. 12. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That word babe again. We saw it very clearly in chapter 1 in reference to John the Baptist. Now it's in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And please keep in mind one more thing. The Lord Jesus Christ is here a newborn. But in Matthew chapter 2 he is a toddler. Hence why the wise men go to see him when he's about 18 months old or over. But here, he is just about to be born, and the shepherds have been chosen to worship him. 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, peace from your sins, and peace from your enemies, and goodwill toward men in the sense that God has provided an atonement for their sins. 15. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, 
the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. That's true faith. They went straight away to the manger to see the newborn king. Whereas in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod called for the wise men to come and advise him as to whether or not the king of the Jews had been born, they gave him the reference, but they did not go with the wise men to worship the newborn king. Typical apostate religious priests. But here, the shepherds, ordinary everyday people, went straight away to worship the newborn king. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. He came for sinners. He came to make sinners right with God. He came for the humble, not the proud. Look at verse 16. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe, lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying, which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things, which were told them by the shepherds. The shepherds are now proclaiming the birth of the king of the Jews. This is a picture of the great commission. But look at verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She's around 15 years old. She's not omnipresent. She's not omnipotent. And she's not omniscient. She's a young child. And she's trying to understand the magnitude of what has just occurred. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. That's how it should be. When sinners meet God, they should rejoice in the fact that God has provided an atonement for their sins. His very own son. Great joy. Something wonderful. Something to be in great gratitude over. That the Lord has done something so magnificent for us. Verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus again means Jehovah saves. And his name was chosen before he was even born. Verse 22. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Mary and Joseph were true Jews. They kept the Mosaic covenant. And yet their son had come to save them from the law. But at this stage they are still under the law. So they are faithfully going up to the temple in Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very much like a thanksgiving sacrifice. Also one point to quickly cover in reference to the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary offered to the Lord in Jerusalem is a simple fact that they were poor. They weren't wealthy, of course. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, the irony of this is staggering. Simply picture the fact how the Lord of the universe, who owns everything and has everything, has come to earth around 4 BC and has been born to a couple of very poor individuals. And here he is going up to his own temple to be offered to himself 
But later on, the Lord Jesus Christ would tell us how he is the Lord of the temple. But for here and now, the temple is the centre of their lives. So during the last broadcast, we ended in verse 24 of Luke chapter 2, where we discovered Joseph and Mary going up to the temple in Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. At this point in time, the Jewish temple meant the world to the people of Israel. But later on, the Lord Jesus Christ told them how he was the Lord of the temple, how he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and how the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For those of us living today, we know that where two or three gather, Christ is there in the midst of us. But here it's quite remarkable how the Lord God of the universe, who owns everything and has everything, has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. His parents, which had absolutely nothing, are now going up to the temple, as I say, to offer a sacrifice to him. It's so paradoxical. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. This man, Simeon, represents a very small remnant of Bible-believing Jews. Most of the Old Testament people of Israel did not believe on their kings or in their prophets. The same was true when the Lord Jesus Christ arrived. But Simeon was a faithful man, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for redemption to be offered for their sins, and he's also waiting for the Davidic kingdom to be established, which of course is very much in reference to the second coming, not the first coming. Look at verse 26. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, being Jesus, of course, and like Elizabeth, he too has received a divine revelation from the Holy Ghost. We know from Malachi to Matthew, a period of around 400 years, how the Lord hadn't spoken to anyone. But within one chapter of this book of Luke, we have discovered from chapter 1 how the Holy Ghost has spoken to Elizabeth, and here in chapter 2 how he has spoken to Simeon. And he's promised him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Look at verse 27. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Simeon must have been a very remarkable man, because not only was he promised that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, but in verse 28, he takes the child up in his arms and blesses him. And he says, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Yeshua meaning salvation. Jesus meaning Jehovah saves which he has prepared before the face of all people to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Jesus Christ was Jewish. He came for the people of Israel and also for the Gentiles. And again, this is a direct revelation from the Lord to Simeon. Elizabeth experienced something in chapter 1 and here Simeon is experiencing something as well. Also, please remember that at this point in time, 
apostasy in Israel was rife, hence why the Holy Ghost is speaking directly to people like Simeon and Elizabeth. But today he speaks to us through his written word. 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. There seems to be a picture here of progressive revelation. Yes, they knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of the Highest, and yet there are references like this and the previous one in verse 19, how they are contemplating, how they are meditating, how they are at times almost bewildered as to what is occurring. No reference here to Mary being the so-called Queen of Heaven. She wasn't omnipresent, omnipotent, or omniscient. She was just a simple girl, chosen among thousands of her generation to bring forth the God-man, as was her cousin Elizabeth chosen to bring forth John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin, of course. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them, and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall, and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was a bond between Jesus and John, as we saw back in the Old Testament, between David and Jonathan, but here there's a bond between Jesus and Mary. When the Lord hung on the cross, he was physically pierced with a spear, and Mary here is being told by Simeon, via direct revelation, via the Holy Ghost, that she too is going to have a sword pierce her own soul, that the thoughts of many may be revealed. She must have suffered to see him physically on the cross, but there's something even deeper than this. She must have been able to feel at a point in time some of the agony that he suffered as a sin bearer of mankind nothing mystical here nothing catholic here but something much deeper something much more profound there's a bond between mary and jesus which we don't quite understand but we are told to believe it 35 one more time a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed Something happened on the cross when the Lord died for the sins of the world. He was there for six hours, and she experienced some of that pain. She was able to understand some of the thoughts of the hearts at that point in time. We can't go beyond that, so we will leave it in verse 35. But 34, Simeon says how the child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. I think it's in reference to 70 AD, the collapse of Israel, and the rising again of many, I think could be in reference to 1948, when the Jews went back to the land. Look at verse 36. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asa. She was of a great age. Anna lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. You see it very clearly here, just how much the temple meant to the faithful remnants of Bible-believing Jews. 38. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Like the shepherds, she too is picturing here the Great Commission. She was a woman who witnessed the Lord's arrival and sacrifice offered for him in the temple, as she's proclaiming the Lord's redemption. The same is true of Mary Magdalene. She was the first to see the risen Christ. Also, this term for prophetess, found in verse 36, simply means to praise the Lord. We saw it with Elizabeth 
and Mary and Zacharias. She wasn't a prophet in the sense of foretelling the future, like Ezekiel, Jeremiah or Isaiah, but more in the sense of praising and worshipping the Lord. And she too, in verse 38, seems to be in the right place at the right time. She was a faithful, Bible-believing Jew, like I say, as was Simeon, and she's been rewarded for her fastings and prayers night and day. A very small remnant of Jews were ready for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most did not believe on him. Most did not even believe in the written word of God. The same is going to be true at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 39. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Very similar language to John the Baptist and these two boys about 30 years old by the time they went into full-time ministry, if you will, were to transform the world. But here Jesus Christ is going to grow and the grace of God is going to be upon him. This is also in reference to his human nature. As I say, Mary gave birth to the Son of Man, not the Son of God per se. Yes, he was always deity, but she gave birth to his human side, not his divine side. Look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. At this point, there's no reference to his siblings. And there's two points to quickly share here. It could be, number one, that Dr. Luke isn't interested in them, hence why he omits them. Or number two, perhaps haven't yet been born. But let's read on. 43. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. He was twelve years old. He was like most boys of his age, in the fact that he may have been associating with friends. Perhaps they thought he was with their extended family and friends, but of course he was not. Now the panic sets in. Where is he? We have to go back and find him. 46. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. These doctors were the scholars of the temple, like Nicodemus. They were the doctors of theology, the PhDs, the BAs, the THDs. But look at verse 47. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. He's 12 years old, and he's running circles around the elite, the scholars, the best of the best. 48. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. She's amazed at where he is and what he's doing. Look at verse 49. And he said unto them, How is it that he sought me? Wished ye not? that I must be about my father's business. Jesus mildly but clearly reprimands Mary for calling Joseph his father, and also for not knowing where he was. I must be about my father's business, in reference to God, of course. Mary, one more time, was not omnipresent, she was not omnipotent, and she was not omniscient. She didn't know where Jesus was, 
and she didn't even know what he was doing when she found him. And when she did find him, she was shocked. Fifty, and they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. Again, progressive revelation is continuing on through the Gospel of Luke. They are growing with him in many ways. He's growing physically. They are growing spiritually. They're trying to keep up with him. 51. And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, like Jacob did in reference to Joseph. She's not quite there yet when it comes to understanding just what he's going to do for the people of Israel. And 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favour with God and man. The young Jesus here is already becoming a mediator between God and man. But these 52 verses from chapter 2 make it very clear to me how Mary, on at least three occasions, failed to grasp just who Jesus Christ was. Yes, she knew he was a son of God. Yes, she knew he had come to save Israel from their sins. But she's still trying to understand how he can be God and man at the same time. Who can blame her? We were never told to understand this, but we were told to believe this. And also from Luke chapter 2, we discovered how the Lord directly intervened into the lives of Simeon and Anna in reference to Jesus Christ being his only begotten son. The apostasy of Israel at this time was endemic. So the Lord bypassed all of the elite priests and scholars. And we saw this from verse 46 and spoke directly into the hearts of Simeon and Anna. And Jesus Christ at 12 years old is already so astonishing when it comes to his questions and answers. But Mary and Joseph are going to have to grow in grace as you have to grow in grace and as I have to grow in grace because they too were sinners in need of a saviour and in need of an understanding deity to forgive them of their sins and to bear with them. But one more time, how is it that he sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? That word ye is plural for both of you. Why are you surprised? Why have you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? It is a rebuke. There's no way around it. But moving on from the Lord's mild rebuke, you find in verse 51 how he was subject unto them. Honour thy mother and thy father. And he did. Of course, Joseph was not his biological father. He was his stepfather. And no doubt Jesus loved Joseph as he loved his mother. But she, Mary, kept all these sayings in her heart. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is no respecter of persons. And verse 52, one final time. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. The young Jesus is already becoming a young mediator between man and God. Luke chapter 3. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Traconitus, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas, and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God, came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. God spoke directly to Elizabeth, and Zacharias, and Simeon, and Anna. And here, 
the word of God, the spoken word of God, came directly from heaven to John, who was in the wilderness preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. Look at verse 3. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. L-O-R-D, quoted from Isaiah chapter 40, in reference to Jehovah God. Here, Dr. Luke is citing this piece of scripture in reference to Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Very much in reference to the first coming, and also to the second coming. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Some people saw him on the cross around 30 AD. But every eye will see him at the end of the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 7. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Don't say Abraham is your father. Don't say the Pope is your leader. Don't say you have Mary to intercede for you. Don't say you have the saints to pray on your behalf. Come to the Lord as you are, and he will receive you. The Jews are very proud for people. They would be boasting in the sense that they were related to the patriarch of Abraham. And John says, forget it. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Come humbled, come broken, come prepared to be repaired and restored and made ready for the arrival of the Messiah. Verse 9. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. The Lord is getting ready to switch from Israel to the church, from the old covenant to the new covenant. Jesus Christ was set for the falling and rising again of many in Israel. The falling could be in reference to the end of the old covenant, and the rising again could be in reference to the new covenant. We have been buried with Christ, we have been resurrected with Christ, if we are born again. But here John is making it very clear that the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, and God is going to cut down every tree which does not bring forth good fruit. Get ready for the arrival of the Messiah. Also from verse 8, we find the word repentance. Please turn to Genesis chapter 6. Look at verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repented me that I had made them. Repenteth, repented, repent, all means the same thing, quite simply, to be remorseful, to have sorrow, to have regret. Please turn back to Luke chapter 3, verse 8, one more time. 
Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Being the Gentiles, of course, by the fall of Israel, the church was grafted in. One more cross-reference. Please turn to Acts chapter 17. Take a look at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Here Paul is addressing unsaved pagans, and he wants them to be saved. 23. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed any thing, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. We are all physical descendants from Adam, but we are only God's children the moment we become born again. Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 29. For as much then, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold, or silver, or stone, graven by art and man's device. This is typical of unsaved people who think that a graven image represents the one true God. And here the word Godhead is in reference to the Trinity, or the triunity of God. Look at verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. That man, of course, is Jesus Christ, and he has chosen a day when he would judge the world in righteousness, in reference to the great white throne judgment. But verse 30 at the times of this ignorance God winked at, meaning he overlooked it. But now, right here, right now, he has commanded, he has ordained, he has ordered all men everywhere to repent. Meaning to change your mind, to show remorse, sorrow and regret from Genesis chapter 6. And turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in him as a son of God and belief on him as a saviour of the world. Please turn back to Luke chapter 3. Verse 7, one more time. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptised of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who has told you that judgment is about to fall? 8. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Make sure your hearts have truly been prepared to receive the coming Messiah. I will baptize you in water, which will prepare you for the arrival of the Messiah, but he will put you into the body of Christ. 
John's baptism of repentance was simply to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of the Messiah. From Acts 19, we find the Apostle Paul coming across some of John's disciples. And he says to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said to him, we haven't even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. They were baptized by John, via water, of course. But they were not baptized into the body of Christ. Water puts you into water, but the Spirit puts you into the body of Christ. Still in verse 8, we, all of us, have Abraham to our father. Like the Catholics, we have the Pope, we have the Mass, we have Mary. Like the Protestants, we have the 39 Articles of Faith. The Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, they're all the same. We have tradition, we have this, we have that. And John says, forget it. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. These people, these institutions are not going to save you because God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Through the fall of Israel, the church has temporarily been grafted in. And for here and now, during the church age, we are the people of God. Those of us which have been born again. But at the end of the church age, the Lord turns back to Israel. And this axe, in verse 9, is at the root of the trees. It's ready to cut down the trees. Because the fruit is rotten. Verse 10. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? Now he's got their attention. But remember, his baptism is in preparation for the Messiah. He's wanting to prepare them to receive Jesus Christ. Verse 11. He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. This goes back really to James chapter 2. If your brother or sister has something which they are in need of, give it to them. Your faith will produce works and your works will prove that you have faith. But one more time, he is trying to prepare the hearts of the people of Israel to receive the coming Messiah. 12. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? Now the tax collectors are arriving, convicted no doubt by his hellfire preaching, which is pretty rare today. And he says in 13, And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. Be content with your wages. Stop defrauding your brethren. 14. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Pretty much in reference to verse 13, to the tax collectors. They were skimming off money from their Roman masters, and no doubt the soldiers were not content with their pittance of a wage. Also keep in mind from verse 14, these Roman soldiers are serving in Israel under orders from Herod, the Tetrarch, who was a Gentile. They were brutal. We saw that from Matthew chapter 2 when they slew the innocents in Bethlehem. But his preaching must have been so powerful that these Roman soldiers came to hear him and then responded, like we see from Acts chapter 10 in reference to Cornelius, who got baptized, who converted to Judaism. But remember one more time, please, that John's preaching is simply to prepare the people 
for the arrival of the Messiah. To keep verse 11, 12, 13 and 14 would not save you. And yet saying that, I will say, especially from verse 11, how you can take that piece of scripture and apply it today in a spiritual sense, as you could also do from verses 13 and 14. But look at verse 15. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. In case you missed it from verse 16, and also from verse 8, he is reiterating the fact that his baptism is simply to put you into water. But Jesus is going to put you into the Holy Ghost if you are saved, and if you are not saved, into fire. And the fire from 17 is unquenchable. It never goes out. Hell is eternal, as is heaven. But 16 underlines the humility of John, how he says, One mightier than I cometh. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoelaces. What did Abraham say? I'm just dust and ashes. Peter said, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. This goes back to verse 8. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Humble yourself. Get down on your knees and cry out to God like a beggar. He came to save sinners. He came to call unrighteous people to repentance. He didn't come for the proud or the righteous or the holier than thou. He came for the everyday, humble, broken, repentant sinner. 18. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. John the Apostle tells us that the Lord said and did many things which were not written down. And here John would have been preaching for weeks, if not months, in preparation for the Messiah to come. He wasn't wanting anyone to come to him to be baptized without truly counting the cost of being identified with the coming King of Israel. No easy believism, and at the same time, no lordship salvation either. Come as you are broken, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, will put you back together again. He will fix you. He makes dead men alive. Take a look at verse 19, please. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. John preached against the incest, the sin of adultery, in reference to Herod, being involved with Philip's wife. John was a fearless preacher. He called a spade a spade. And after a while, pressure from Herodias and her daughter, Herod decided to put John in jail. If he could have avoided it, he would have done. But he loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptised, 
it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice came from heaven which said thou art my beloved son in thee I am well pleased God the Father speaks to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit appears in a bodily shape and rests on the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more magnificent in verse 21 is how Jesus is lining up to be baptised with everyone else. Humility, it's staggering. Go back to Luke chapter 2 and we saw it last time where Joseph and Mary are going up to the temple to offer their sacrifice to the Lord. No doubt queuing up to go in to the temple because it was a very busy place, sacrificing animals every day of the week. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is lining up with sinners to be baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. He, Jesus, was without sin, but he, Jesus, became a sin bearer for us. And verse 22, one more time, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Nobody could have missed it. God the Father speaking about God the Son and the Holy Spirit also testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Those standing around must have heard it. And John the Baptist, no doubt, must have been overwhelmed with this great event. All of his life he has been preparing for this day. And now his cousin has come to be baptised as a sign to Israel. Water does not save you. We know this from Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But to show others that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ a water baptism by total immersion is called for. You are baptised because you have already been saved, not in order to be saved. And Jesus Christ has come to be baptised as a sign to Israel that he is the Messiah of God. And one very quick footnote to insert, which was of interest to me when I discovered it a few days ago, how Matthew chapter 3 speaks about repentance. Mark chapter 3 speaks about repentance john chapter 3 speaks about repentance in reference to the new birth and luke chapter 3 speaks about repentance in reference to the preparation of the arrival of the messiah it's very interesting how the holy spirit lays out the book which we call the bible every word is god breathed holy men of god spake as they are moved by the holy ghost but uh, as I say, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all cover the new birth via repentance in the third chapter of each of their writings. Very interesting. And one last time from verse 6, how all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Yeshua meaning salvation or salvation meaning Yeshua and Jesus meaning Jehovah saves. All flesh in a sense saw Yeshua on the cross and all flesh, in a sense, will see Jesus return in Revelation chapter 1. But please turn very quickly, if you will, to John chapter 20. Look at verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, 
Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. So yes, those people back in the first century, which physically saw the Lord, were blessed. But here, the Lord makes it very clear that those that have not seen are blessed equally. Because we live by faith, not by sight. The just shall live by faith. So please turn back to Luke chapter 3, and I can see that I'm already out of time for today's broadcast. So I'll say very briefly, if I may, in reference to Dr. Luke's genealogy, where he traces Jesus right back to the first man, being Adam. And Adam is called the Son of God, which is interesting, because Jesus Christ is called the second Adam. Whereas Matthew traces Jesus Christ right back to Abraham, the first Jew. Also in verse 23, Joseph is called the son of Heli. Heli was the father of Mary. Joseph married Mary, and therefore he was allowed, he was qualified, he was entitled to be called the son of Heli. So there's no discrepancy here when it comes to Dr. Luke's genealogy of the Lord Jesus when we compare it to Matthew's genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. 77 names found here, and please read this in your own time and leisure. Very interesting, 77. We know from latter parts of the New Testament when the Lord comes across Peter in reference to repentance. And he says, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus says, 70 times 7, meaning 77. And here's 77 names make up the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. From Joseph all the way back to Adam, being the first man, of course. Next up, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended he afterward hungered. The Son of Man is human, the Son of God is divine. Here we find the Son of Man being hungry, which refers back to his humanity. He was tired, he was hungry. He was a son of man, but at the same time, he's also the son of God. God became a man in Christ Jesus. But here, we're going to focus primarily on the next 13 verses on Satan interacting with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the creator, Satan being the creation. And 13 is an interesting number because 13 has for many years been synonymous with the occult. Friday the 13th, considered by many to be an unlucky day. 13 is also very infamous in witchcraft circles. Also this term for wilderness is found many times throughout the New Testament. We find it very clearly in Revelation chapter 12, in reference to Israel hiding, seeking refuge, from Satan, one more time, throughout the Great Tribulation. Paul, when he was saved, went into the wilderness. Sometimes people say, I've had a wilderness experience. But here Jesus Christ, being full of the Holy Spirit, is going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan tempted Adam, and Adam fell, and here Satan is going to tempt the second Adam. But the second Adam is not going to fail. Verse 3. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it may be made bread. Satan has the audacity, but also the authority, 
to interrogate, to test the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you are the son of God, command the stone to be made bread. Jesus Christ is very God. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And even to this present time, he can still do whatever he chooses to do. But he's hungry from verse 3. And Satan is also trying to split the God-man. In the sense that he wants him to rely on his divinity. Because he is hungry in reference to his human side. In verse 2. But verse 3, he is referring to his divinity, his deity. He wants Jesus Christ to trust in his divinity. But Jesus Christ here is going to be tested by his humanity. Verse 4. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The written word of God. Inspired by God and preserved by God. Food only takes you so far, but eventually you will need the written word of God. Not just to live and survive in Satan's world, but to know the will of God. Take the word of God out of the equation, and you will never know the will of God for your life. 5. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, shewed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Not difficult to do now through satellite, television, and the internet. But here, around 26 AD, this was something unimaginable, unprecedented. But Satan is a created being. He is supernatural. Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 4, that he is the God of this world. Lowercase g, of course, but he has authority. And here, he is boasting to Jesus Christ. He's saying, all this I have, but if you want it, it will come at a price. Much like we find with movie stars and pop stars and politicians today. Many of these men and women have sold their soul for success. And they become Satan's children as a result. 6. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. He has great authority, as do his minions. Many people are following Satan today, directly and indirectly. Clairvoyance, commune with the spirits of the deceased, or so they believe, but in reality they are communing with Satan and his minions. All this power I will give you, and the glory of them. What a statement to make. And there's two ways to look at this. Because Satan in John chapter 8 is called a liar. And also a murderer. But at the same time the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't correct him either. So it's quite possible to read these verses. And take them literally in the sense that Satan has this power. And authority and almost right from heaven of course to do with it as he sees fit. And please also keep in mind something very simple, which is lost on many today, that Satan is a literal being. Jesus Christ is not speaking to himself. He's speaking to Satan, and Satan is speaking to Jesus Christ as well. Two literal, supernatural beings. One is good, one is evil. One will save you, one will damn you. Look at verse 7, please. If thou therefore wilt worship me, 
all shall be thine. He doesn't correct him again. He allows him to continue on this diatribe, this theme, this monologue almost, in the sense that Satan is trying to get Jesus Christ to fall down and worship him. Isaiah 14, Satan makes it very clear that he wants to be like God and even replace God, if he could. But, of course, his time on this earth is limited. And I'll say this also, if I may. If you are a Bible-believing Christian and you are being tempted and tested or even afflicted, perhaps by an unclean spirit, look at verse 8. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He goes to the scripture one more time, and he says, You get behind me, and you must worship the Lord your God. Who is Satan speaking to? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ here is affirming deity, divinity. He's saying, You, Satan, get behind me and worship the Lord your God, because it is written in the word of God, the written word of God, whereas Jesus Christ is the living word of God. And him, God only, shalt thou serve. Satan was a created being, and he was created to serve God. You find it very clearly in Ezekiel 28. And yet not being deterred by these words from the Lord Jesus, take a look at verse 9. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now it's Satan's turn to quote scripture, and he knows the word of God better than most people will ever know it. He's been around for thousands of years, and he is very interested in organised religion as well. He's got the pop stars, the politicians, and the movie stars in his pocket. He's got most of the churches and the world religions in his pocket too. But what he hasn't got in his pocket are true Bible-believing Christians. And he certainly has not got the Lord Jesus Christ in his pocket also. This pinnacle found in verse 9 of the temple was 450 feet high. Satan likes height. He took Jesus up to a high mountain in verse 5. Back in the Old Testament, many of the pagans worshipped on high mountains. But Jesus Christ also took his apostles up into the mountain of the transfiguration. Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So there's something in the word of God when it comes to height and also depth. Satan is also very interested in the ocean. But let's move on, if we may. 12. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. One more time, he is referring to his deity. And he's quoting the Old Testament to affirm this. Satan has just quoted the word of God from verses 9 down to 11, and he's also twisted the word of God, like he did back in Genesis, chapter 3. And if you go back to the scripture, which Satan is quoting from Psalm 91, and if you read it very carefully, you will see just how subtly he has twisted 
and misrepresented the written word of God. 13. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season, a period of time, no more than that. Today we have four seasons in the UK. And here, this season is simply in reference to a period of time. But he's going to return, he's going to try time after time to thwart the Lord's ministry, the Lord's mission. He's going to work through the weakest of the weakest apostles. And Jesus Christ is going to have to pray the high priest's prayer for his little flock to keep Satan away from them. Please allow me to say this also, if I may, that we as Bible-believing Christians have no right to ever directly communicate with Satan or his minions. The apostles did so on a limited basis. The apostles were handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ for service, not salvation, but their service was determined by God's foreknowledge as to how they could handle any given situation. If you go to the book of Jude, you discover very clearly how Michael the archangel, when disputing with Lucifer over the body of Moses, says the Lord rebuke thee. Michael the archangel doesn't directly rebuke Satan, he passes Satan back to God. He brings God into the equation, and he relies totally on the Lord God of the Bible to deal with Satan. And here Jesus Christ very clearly affirms A, his divinity, and B, the written word of God. So if you are being tempted or afflicted by Satan, verse 8, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That's the nearest you ever need to get as a Bible-believing Christian when dealing with Satan. Turn from sin, flee from sin, and seek refuge in the Lord God of the Bible. But don't ever engage him through dialogue. He's far too powerful for that. As I say, Michael the Archangel didn't even dare bring an accusation against Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke thee. So please be mindful of these points. And verse 13, as I say, interesting because it points back one more time to the occult. Friday the 13th being considered by many to be a bad day. But 13 in the occult and Satanism is considered by them to be very important indeed. And here, the Bible, written by the Holy Ghost, has given verse 13 as a pointer to show us very clearly that when these things had ended, Satan departed from Jesus for a season. So 13 is important when it comes to Satan. But as Bible-believing Christians, we should always be fearing God, not Satan. And neither should we ever fear man, because the fear of man bringeth a snare. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. For three and a half years there was no sickness anywhere in Israel. And his fame went abroad. He was known throughout the entire Middle East as it is now known today. Paul, I believe, quite possibly knew of the Lord Jesus Christ, Herod's secret police, and Pilate's secret police. 
along with the temple priests, secret police, would have been watching the Lord Jesus very carefully. He did nothing in secret. He wasn't ashamed of his ministry, unlike the Freemasons that meet in secret to do their wicked and evil deeds. He did everything out in the open, and he was glorified of all. Also in 15, synagogues, not churches. This is still very much Old Testament teachings, if you will. Nothing found so far in the first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke has any direct doctrinal application to the Bible-believing Christian today. But we can and must take these verses in a spiritual sense. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Sabbath day, one more time, is Saturday, not Sunday. The Jews met on a Saturday, whereas Christians meet on a Sunday because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead on a Sunday, not a Saturday. But here, he's in the synagogue and he's standing up to read the word of God. 17. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the broken-hearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. From Isaiah 61, and the atmosphere must have been electric. Look at verse 20. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. These men knew the Old Testament back to front, but they didn't believe the Old Testament. That's the problem. You can be very religious and have a head knowledge, but unless your heart has been circumcised, it's all in vain. Their eyes were fastened, focused exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ. The atmosphere, as I say, must have been electric. This man has lived among them all of his life, and he has walked into their synagogue. He has quoted Isaiah 61, and he has stopped halfway through Isaiah's prophecy. Why? Because he is only referring to the first coming, in reference to the son of Joseph, the suffering saviour. The second part of Isaiah 61 is in reference to the son of David, coming back to conquer the earth, to rule and reign for a thousand years. They couldn't believe what they had just seen and heard. Look at 21. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Can you imagine the reaction from these people? He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 18, and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This was a messianic prophecy of the Messiah. And Jesus Christ has walked into their own synagogue in Nazareth, where he had been raised, and he has said to them, I am the Messiah. They couldn't believe what they were seeing or hearing. Take a look at verse 22. And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. 
And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. How very true. You try witnessing to your friends and family. Most of those people that you know, friends, family, work colleagues, neighbours perhaps, won't listen to your witness. Because they can remember you before you were saved. But if somebody else goes to them with the word of God, the chances are they will receive it. Jesus Christ was raised in Nazareth for 30 years of his life. These people lived with him. They may have even worked with him as he was growing up, perhaps helping Joseph in his woodyard. And he says no prophet is accepted in his own country. He's even referring here to the fact that he is a prophet. But even that's too much for them to receive. 25. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. From 25 down to 27, the Lord Jesus quotes Elijah and Elisha's ministry. And he makes it very clear that there was great famine in the land in verse 25. And yet Elisha was only sent unto a woman in Sidon who was a widow. Miracles in the Old Testament were far and few between. Miracles in the New Testament post the Gospels and post Acts chapter 16 are even rarer. Paul told us in Romans chapter 1 that the just shall live by faith. So for the Lord Jesus Christ to quote Elijah and Elisha's ministries in reference to the fact that these great men were sent not necessarily to the children of Israel but to people outside of Israel which pictures the Lord's ministry post the rejection of Israel. He's going to go to the Gentiles. Look at 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They wanted to kill him, and they would do, 30 AD on the cross, but here and now, his time has not yet come. Here his divinity steps in, and he is whisked away. Look at verse 30. But he passing through the midst of them went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. When man meets God, the chances are he is going to reject God. Man hates God. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Man turns from God but thanks be to God, God turns to man and rescues man. But man has to believe. Man has to receive the gift of eternal life, which is found only through Jesus Christ. 
But how sad and how tragic these verses are that the people of Israel, the Jews, in their synagogue, despised the gracious words which proceeded out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is not this Joseph's son? What a slap in the face to the Lord Jesus. They wanted God, but not Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said, No son, no father, no father, no son. If you reject the father, you have also rejected the son as well. And I'll say this also too, if I may. Their understanding of God was seriously flawed due to the fact that for many years the people of Israel had been in captivity to Babylon. And also they are living under Roman occupation through Herod the Tetrarch. Their priests have all sold out. Their priests are career clergy. So for the most part the people of Israel have no idea who God is. Hence why Jesus Christ chose Simeon and Anna to preach, to proclaim, to experience his arrival. And also Elizabeth too, who proclaimed, who prophesied about the birth of Christ, whereas Simeon prophesied and proclaimed about the death of Christ. Organized religion for the most part played no part in the arrival of the Messiah of Israel. That is something outstanding. That's something profound. That's something which all Bible-believing Christians today should be mindful of. God does not dwell in temples made by the hands of men. He reigns in the hearts of all those which have been regenerated, born again. 32. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was of power. Of course it was. He's God and he's also man. He's the creator of the universe. His words would ricochet to the souls of mankind. When you met Jesus Christ, you were never the same again. 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God, go back to Isaiah 43, is in reference to Jehovah God. The unclean spirit knew that Jesus Christ was Jehovah God. The unclean spirit, like Satan, was created by Jehovah God. And this unclean spirit is in a man who attended the local synagogue. Like I said at the beginning of this broadcast, Satan is very interested in organized religion. Let us plural alone, 34. What have we, plural, to do with thee? Devils, plural, in one man. An unclean devil, singular, but the unclean devil speaks out with a loud voice and says one more time, What have we to do with thee? Thou Jesus of Nazareth. They knew who he was, and they are terrified, because he one day is going to cast them into the lake of fire. They also speak with a loud voice, which I told you last time, in reference to Elizabeth, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke with a loud voice. And here the unclean spirit is going to counterfeit the Holy Spirit, and speak with a loud voice. So nobody could miss it, 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Incredible. 35. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the mist, he came out of him, and hurt him not. He left the Lord for a season, in verse 13, and here he is back, in 35, indirectly, to thwart the Lord's ministry. The devils went into overtime, when the Lord Jesus Christ came onto the earth. 36. And they were all amazed, and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. Only God can do this, my friends. The apostles could as well, but they are now all dead. So if you are ever afflicted by the devil, go to the Lord God of the Bible, and cry out to him. And if you really need to, verse 8, one more time, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. But here the devil comes out of the man, and does not hurt him, because Jesus Christ has power and authority over Satan and all of the unclean spirits. 37. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. You can imagine it. People would have been speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ all over the Roman Empire, as it was at that time. 38. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. This fever, I believe, is somehow related to the devils found in the earlier verses. She, of course, is the mother of the wife of Peter. Peter was quite possibly the oldest of the apostles, and most certainly the weakest of all the apostles as well. Hence why the Lord spent so much time with him. 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose, and ministered unto them. So for me these devils were indirectly related to the incident in the synagogue. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and healed them. Those that came forward to be healed were always healed, and they were healed immediately. No comeback tomorrow, no comeback next week, no comeback next month to be sure of your healing. Those that came to be healed were healed straight away. You don't find that today, but he had the authority to heal instantaneously, as did the apostles and some of their associates. But today the just shall live by faith. Why were the apostles equipped to do this? because they were the writers of the New Testament. Once the New Testament had been written, their gifts started to cease. Paul almost became blind before he died, and he had to rely on scribes to write down his words. Timothy had an ulcer which lasted for many years, and he too had to take wine to alleviate the pain. Paul wasn't healed, Timothy wasn't healed, the gift of healing had ceased by that time. 41. And devils also came out of many, crying out, and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. Of course they did. They knew he was the creator of the universe, and they had been possessing many for such a long time. 
and it took the great deliverer to come to earth to heal mankind not just of their sin but to deliver them from unclean spirits 42 and when it was day he departed and went into a desert place and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them and he said unto them i must preach the kingdom of god to other cities also for therefore am i sent and he preached in the synagogues of galilee they wanted him to stay they wanted to experience more of his glory and wonderful words and his doctrine but he says i have to preach to other cities also he was on a very strict timetable just three and a half years but his ministry his goal his ultimate reason for coming to the earth was to arrive in jerusalem 30 a.d to die for the sins of the world next up luke chapter 5 luke chapter 5 and it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of god he stood by the lake of gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets what a great way to start luke chapter 5 the people are pressing upon him to hear the word of god and here the eternal word of god is about to preach the word of god to the people of israel verse 3 and he entered into one of the ships which was simon's and prayed him that he were thrust out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship jesus christ is called the captain of our salvation and here he has decided to board a ship to preach to the people he didn't lock himself away in synagogues or the temple every day of the week he went out and about into the highways and the byways to preach the word of god to everyday people for those of us living today that are born again we too must follow the example here of the master verse 4 now when he had left speaking he said unto simon launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught and simon answering said unto him master we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing nevertheless at thy word i will let down the nets simon was a professional fisherman and here he is humbly bowed down to the will of god and said lord if you will i will do as you have commanded me that took great humility and great faith as well look at verse six and when they had this done they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net brake the saviour of the world told us he would never leave us nor forsake us and if we prayed in the will of god our prayers would be answered but here the lord is demonstrating that sometimes you have to live by faith in order to receive a great blessing peter and his brother were full-time professional fishermen and they had partners that worked alongside them as well as i say it took great faith and humility for peter to bow down to the will of the master and it paid off their net broke they had so many fishes they probably didn't know what to do with them but look at verse seven and they beckoned unto their partners which were in the other ship that they should come and help them and they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink as i say here they are given an abundance of food when people come up to me in the streets and say why does god allow 
so many people around the world to starve, to go into dehydration sometimes. Why is there famine all around the world? I tell them quite simply that there is enough food to go around the world ten times over for every man, woman and child. But because of greedy governments, they want a greater profit. And sometimes when they won't or cannot reach the quota, when they can't reach the level of profit that they would like to receive, they throw good food into the sea. It's down primarily to the greediness and selfishness of mankind. But here the living Saviour, the living Word of God, has done one of his first major miracles in the Gospel of Luke. And he's doing it to increase the faith of Peter, his brother, and the rest of his associates. And of course we mustn't forget how the Jews are entitled to receive a sign from heaven. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When man came into the presence of deity, once his heart had been prepared by the Holy Ghost to receive an intimate audience, revelation, experience of deity, man instantly saw his sin. And here Simon Peter says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Abraham said he was dust and ashes. Isaiah said he was a man of unclean lips. When you came to the presence of deity, if you are born again, you too would have seen yourself as a filthy rag. Someone so unclean, someone so despicable, someone so worthy of hell, that it took the Lord God of the Bible to become a man and live the life that we cannot live and die in our place. And just put yourself back into the shoes of Peter for a moment. He's among his brother and his partners and quite possibly other fishermen and he's gone down on his knees in the presence of all these people and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But praise be to God, Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He is a loving saviour. He loves you far more than you will ever love him. And he understands all of your infirmities before you were even saved. Not only did he die for all of your past, present and future sins, but he knew what mistakes you would make. He knew what sins you would commit even after you believed on him. And yet his atonement has covered everything. How magnificent, how beautiful, how wonderful is the Saviour who we call the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, and the draught of the fishers which they had taken, and so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, are also privileged to have experienced this incredible miracle. Jesus says, Fear not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the fear of man bringeth a snare. He's saying, Don't fear, don't worry, because from now on you will catch men. Which means you will have to go out into the highways and the byways to reach mankind. We at this ministry go onto the streets nearly every day of the week. We preach the gospel sometimes with a PA system, sometimes not. We always give out tracts 
and most of the time we take our banner as well. We are sole winners. These fishermen were disciplined men. They would rise up very early in the morning and sometimes spend not hours but days at sea, which is a picture of soul winning. Winning souls to the Lord Jesus Christ takes time and patience and endurance. These things rarely come overnight. We've been out on the streets for 10 years now. I've been saved 12 years. And I've spoken to people five, six, seven, eight years ago that have contacted us at our ministry and have told us that they are now born again, thanks to what we told them all those years ago. But here he says from henceforth, right now, thou shalt catch men. Soul winners, don't just sit in the pews if you are a saved man or woman, go into the highways and the byways. And if you are a professional preacher, if you are a career clergyman, and you have never preached on the streets, if you have never gone out seeking to reconcile man to God, which is what the Great Commission is, you need to start doing so right now. Because the Great Commission is for all born-again Bible-believing Christians. Verse 11. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. These were very wealthy, lower-middle-class fishermen, and they decided from this moment on they were going to turn around and follow the Lord, which is a type of repentance, a complete about turn, a turning from unbelief to belief. And they forsook all and followed him. What a great price they must have paid to do this. But something magnificent had just occurred in their lives. They were never going to be the same again. Post Acts chapter 1, these men never would board ships again and go out into Gennesaret or Galilee or this lake or the lake of Tiberias or any lake for that matter. These men would turn the world upside down and from Acts chapter 9 the greatest man that ever lived being Paul of course would join them but for here and now they are going to forsake everything and follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. Please look at verse 12 and it came to pass when he was in a certain city Behold a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus, fell on his face, and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He fell on his face, a picture of reverence. He did not fall backwards, which we find in John chapter 18, which pictures enemies of God. And you see some of these people going to these crusades, these so-called revival meetings around the world, where they fall backwards. And they dubbed this being slain in the spirit. But here, when deity came into the presence of mankind, when mankind was privileged to meet deity, he fell on his face in reverence to being in the presence of Almighty God. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You can do all things because you are all powerful. This man had leprosy and orphanoness. Look at 13. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. We saw in chapter 4, verse 13, how Satan was synonymous with verse 13. And here in verse 13, we see leprosy being synonymous with something unclean. It's quite possible that Satan was also 
behind this illness. Perhaps this individual had fallen into sin and leprosy had come as a result of his sin. But here the Lord touched him. He put forth his hand on him and said, I will be thou clean. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke the universe into being. And here, by touching this man with leprosy, which was unheard of, if you go back to the Old Testament, the high priest, and Jesus is our high priest, wouldn't have been allowed to touch anything unclean, let alone come into the presence of someone or something unclean. But here Jesus Christ wasn't concerned about that because he came to reach the common man and woman in the street. And immediately, verse 13 again, the leprosy departed from him. No comeback tomorrow, no comeback next week, no comeback next month for a checkup. No, immediately, straight away, this leprosy departed from him. He, Jesus Christ, was a great miracle maker. If you go to the Britannic Encyclopedia and look up the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find how he has done more miracles than anybody else. A secular book, and they are affirming that Jesus Christ, since the creation of the world up until the present time, is still number one when it comes to the great miracle maker. Just yesterday, I was speaking to some Muslims on the street, and they asked me, do I believe in the Quran? And I said, no, I don't need it. I have the Bible. There's nothing new, there's nothing fresh in the Quran that we don't have in the Bible. And I said to them, Jesus Christ did more miracles than Muhammad. He raised the dead, he walked on water, he gave sight to the blind, and he died for our sins. What did Muhammad do for us? They couldn't respond. They couldn't answer me, because they have no answer. But here Jesus Christ simply said, I will, be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. What an amazing creator. What a loving saviour we have. Verse 14. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and shew thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing, according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Here you find an indirect rebuke and an indirect witness to the priests, the Pharisees at the temple. These men were not believing Jews. They had a head knowledge of the Lord, but their hearts were far from him. And they'd been lost in tradition. They'd gone through the Babylonian captivity. And like I said last time, they were very much puppet preachers, if you will, a career clergy under the power and influence of Pilate and Herod. And the Lord says, go up to the temple and do as Moses commanded you. He wasn't interested in people coming to find him, to receive him in that sense. He knew who he was coming for. And he was more interested here in this man going up to the temple and indirectly witnessing and rebuking these apostate individuals. Verse 15, but so much the more went there a fame abroad of him and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. You couldn't stop this man from preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. When you got saved, you were full of the Holy Ghost. When I got saved, I was on cloud nine, as they say. I wrote to everyone that I knew and had ever known. I spoke to many people. I contacted pretty much everybody that I had known up to that time to tell them that I was born again. I was a changed man. So you can't blame this individual for being so full of happiness and joy. But he was told in verse 14, nevertheless, to tell no man. But as I say, he went on his way broadcasting abroad what Jesus Christ had done for them. And Jesus, by his mercy, did heal those that came to be healed. Even though he wasn't wanting 
uh, people to come to bow down to him at this point of time. That will be the second coming. He received his people nevertheless. Verse 16. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. That term wilderness, again, we found it back in the fourth chapter. And here, he's going to be a man of prayer. And I'll tell you something, I don't pray enough. I'm a very busy man. I'm a soul winner, but I don't pray enough. I have a heart for the lost, but I don't pray enough. And here, Jesus Christ, very God and very man, prayed. From chapter 6, he prayed all night, for he chose his apostles. And here he is setting an example for us. He did it back in Matthew chapter 3 when he was baptised by John the Baptist. And here he is praying in the wilderness. 17. And it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which had come out of every town of Galilee, and Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Simply meaning he was ready, he was prepared, he was willing at this point in time to heal those that were going to be coming forth to be healed. Even of the Pharisees, even of the scholars, the doctors of the law, and no doubt the scribes were watching him with hawkish eyes. He was happy, he was prepared to heal those that wanted to be healed. Verse 18, And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in, and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by which way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop, and let him down through the tiling, with his couch, into the midst of Jesus. That took great faith, and it was also very dangerous. But this man, being lowered down in a couch, was desperate to be healed. He had the palsy, a serious, wicked, debilitating illness, like leprosy. And he was lowered down through the roof, with the help of his friends. Everybody would have come to see this. And again, Jesus Christ, the great healer, the great miracle maker, nothing was too impossible for him. Verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which is the most simplest form of the Greek language of the first century. This term man, you think of people that say, Hey man, what's happening man? And here Jesus Christ is almost speaking the language of the street. He says, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. His sins had caused quite possibly the palsy to come on. And he says, thy sins, plural, are forgiven thee. 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Absolutely. We saw in chapter 4, Jesus Christ in dialogue with Satan, and he quotes the written word of God, and part of the scripture which he quotes affirms his deity. And here these Pharisees and scribes, the religious fathers of their day, are quite right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? He is omniscient. He read their thoughts. He saw their hearts. He knew what was going on. 23. Whether it's easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. Well, of course, both are incredible. But again, he's drawing out from these individuals the true problem here, which is unbelief. 24. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. The Son of Man has power 
upon the earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Temple, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Once more he is affirming his deity, but it's lost on these individuals. 25. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. Absolutely. This man had met the living God, the one true God, Jehovah God, and he couldn't restrain himself. He went on his way, glorifying God. 26. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. It's almost a paradox. They're over the moon, they cannot believe what they've seen and heard, and yet at the same time they are fearful, which is quite normal. Because one more time, if you come into the presence of deity, you will be forever changed. Whether you believe in the Lord God or the Bible or not, I believe Pilate was forever changed, as was Herod. They weren't saved, they both died, as far as I'm concerned, as unsaved men. But they were never the same after meeting the God-man, Christ Jesus. 27. And after these things he went forth, and saw a publican named Levi, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Here Levi was a tax collector, a very wealthy man, as was Peter and his brother, as was James and John. And he too was forever changed. He was also despised by his people, because he was very much seen as a collaborator between the Romans and the Jews. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Unless you humble yourself as a child, and acknowledge that you are a sinner worthy of hell, you will never be saved. It's as simple as that. But here Levi, pre his salvation, kept company with publicans and sinners. All types of immoral people. And the Lord said, I'm happy to associate with these people because they need to be saved. They have come forward to be saved, which takes great courage and humility. To be associated with the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century meant you would be ostracized by your community. And verse 32, one more time, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Everyone's a sinner. If you've lied, you are a liar. If you've stolen something, you are a thief. And if you've ever hated anyone in your heart, you are a murderer, according to the word of God. Humble yourself if you're not saved. He came to save you. He came to die for you. He came to reconcile you to God through the death that he would pay for your sins and my sins on a cross. Also, I'll say this very briefly, if I may, that these people that were associated with uh, Levi, they were companions of his, and they came forth to hear the Saviour, to meet the Saviour, and quite possibly to be saved by the words of the Saviour. He preached the word of God to them back in verse 1, and here he's going to do it again in Levi's house. But of course, the scribes and the Pharisees don't like this. They thought they had the keys to the kingdom. They thought that if you wanted to meet God, you had to go to the temple. Much like today, the Catholic Church believed that if you want to go to heaven, you have to go to the Church of Rome and attend the Mass each and every day, have your sins allegedly forgiven in order to go to heaven. 
and Jesus Christ completely bypassed organised religion. I said last time, and I'll say it again, how he chose someone like Simeon and Anna, two faithful Jewish people whose hearts were right and had been patiently awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. He chose John the Baptist to baptise him, not the high priest in the temple. That should say a lot to anyone living today who thinks that organised religion has something to offer you. God doesn't work through organised religion. He came to fulfil the law. He came to save us from the law. Verse 33. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often, and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? John and his disciples had a limited understanding of the will of God. John's ministry was very limited. He didn't live for very long, hence why he was always praying along with his disciples. But Jesus had three and a half years on the earth. He wasn't restricted in the same way that John had been restricted. So this term here to eat and drink doesn't mean they were eating inappropriate food or excessive food or drinking alcohol or getting drunk, far from it. They were simply more at ease because Jesus Christ, being God and man, knew exactly what was happening and how much time he had on the earth. 34. And he said unto them, Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast? while the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Absolutely. As long as the bridegroom was with them, everything was fine. But once he, the bridegroom, being Jesus Christ, of course, had been taken away from them, then they'd be fasting and praying. Everything at that point in time would change. But for here and now, he's got at least three years ahead of him before his death on the cross in Calvary. 36. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles, and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also, having drunk old wine straightway, desireth new, for he saith the old is better. In reference, of course, to the fulfilment of the old covenant and the initiation of the new covenant. Everything we have read so far, up until this point in the book of Luke, is still very much Jewish teachings to the Jewish people. The new covenant was not initiated until the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next up, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the corn fields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn, and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read so much as this? What David did, when himself was anhungered, and they which were with him, how he went into the house of God, and did take and eat the shewbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. He find the Pharisees taking the place 
of the self-righteous, legalistic brigade of today, known primarily as Lordship Salvation. And here this is very interesting because the Lord Jesus quotes King David from 1 Samuel 21. And David, of course, is a type of Christ. And if you go back to 1 Samuel and read it very carefully, you find David on the run from King Saul, who is a type of the Antichrist. And verse 5, in case you missed it, the Lord Jesus says how he, the Son of Man, is Lord also of the Sabbath. Once again, he is affirming his deity. He gave the Sabbath to man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, quite simply, is from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, given primarily to the Jews living under the Mosaic Covenant. But for here and today, for those of us which are born again, we keep the first day of the week, which is Sunday, because Jesus Christ came up out of the tomb on a Sunday, which pictures the new covenant, whereas the Sabbath pictures the old covenant. Verse 6, And it came to pass also on another Sabbath, that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. You can't miss it, the Lord Jesus Christ came first and foremost to the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. John chapter 4. And yet at the same time, he, Jesus, came unto his own, the Jews. And yet his own, the Jews, did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Through the fall of Israel, we, the Gentiles, we, the church, have now been grafted in. And for here and now, during the church age, we are the people of God. But our job is to make the Jews jealous. Our job is to pray and intercede for unbelieving Israel to believe on the Messiah. But verse 6, the Lord is going into the synagogue on a Sabbath to teach. He was a Jew of the Jews. He kept the Jewish Sabbath to a fine tea. In fact, he fulfilled the law for us. That's why he is our substitutionary atonement. But here he finds a man whose right hand has been withered. Look at verse 7. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. It wasn't sinful to heal on the Sabbath, but if you go back to the Old Testament, for the most part, miracles were very rare. Reading through the Gospels, you find miracles left, right and centre. Why? Because the Lord of the universe has arrived in the world to preach against sin, to heal mankind from unclean spirits, and to give those that believe on him everlasting life. Hence why the devils are working overtime to thwart him. But post Acts chapter 16, the sign gifts start to drop off. Why? Because the apostles have written most, if not all, of the New Testament, excluding the Gospel of John, Revelation, and some later Johannine writings, and therefore the written word of God is in circulation. The just shall live by faith. But here the Lord is going into a synagogue to preach and to teach, and also to heal. But once again, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious fathers of their day, these lost holy fathers, these lost reverence in organized religion, are watching him, waiting to pounce and find an accusation against him. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts, and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up, and stand forth in the midst. And he arose, and stood forth. That took faith and courage. To follow the Lord meant excommunication, and to follow the Lord could also mean 
loss of employment. And also from verse 8, he, Jesus, knew their thoughts, once again in reference to his deity. He knew the thoughts of mankind. He knew the hearts of unbelieving men and women. He, of course, is the God-man. You can't miss these verses affirming time after time how he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is affirming deity. He was God and he was man at the same time. Look at verse 9. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He's very good at answering a question with a question and even initiating a conversation when necessary. Verse 10. And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. Once again, the Lord has gone into a synagogue to preach and also to heal. We saw him last time also in a synagogue casting an unclean spirit out of a man. For the most part, the Lord's ministry was on the street, reaching out to everyday people. But at the same time, he has come to fulfill the law. Hence why we find him teaching in the Jewish synagogue or in the Jewish temple. And here he has chosen to heal a man whose right hand was withered, right under the eyes of the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees. Once again, a direct and indirect rebuke against organized religion and unbelieving Israel. Verse 11, and they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. This is a conspiracy with a capital C and it's gone on for centuries. If you go back to the Old Testament, you find the people of Israel for the most part, not only rejecting their priests and prophets and kings, but also rejecting the Lord God of the Bible. Please turn to John chapter 11. Take a look at verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. These people were threatened totally by the Lord Jesus Christ. This council was called to decide what to do about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go through church history, and if you look up the famous church councils of Carthage or Nicaea or Trent, you find, for the most part, the subject of excommunication for those people that find themselves at odds with these councils, and also death. 48. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. The Pharisees were most concerned about losing their power, privilege, and standing. The Roman Catholic Church launched the Spanish Inquisition, a period of over 600 years, under the orders of 80 popes, which saw the death of over 50 million people, because they too were scared about losing their power and privilege in the world. They did not want the people under them to turn from the papacy and be born again. The Pharisees here did not want the people to turn from organized religion and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. 49. 
and one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. But look at verse 53. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Counsel and death are synonymous. And here one more time, organized religion has come together to conspire, to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. And also of interest to me, verses 49 down to 52, how Caiaphas, an unsaved Pharisee, has just prophesied via the Holy Ghost how the Lord Jesus Christ would die for the people and nation and gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. The Lord works in mysterious ways and for the most part his ministry of reconciliation was totally lost on this group of Pharisees and scribes. Please turn back to Luke chapter 6. Look at verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. God the Son is praying to God the Father. And I said last time how one of my weaknesses is that I don't pray enough. But here the Lord prayed all night. He was buffeted almost from the cradle to the grave. And he too needed to rest and on this occasion he chose to find a mountain to pray all night to God. He's going to choose his apostles. Look at verse 13. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called Zealots, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Judas Iscariot, in Matthew and Mark, is always listed in final place. He was the betrayer, a type of the Antichrist. And yet the Lord, through his own will, decided to call this man, who, according to John chapter 6, was a devil, it's a paradox, it's a mystery, and yet at the same time, this man had a free will. He could have gone either way, and yet the Lord knew through foreknowledge that Judas Iscariot would betray him. He would become the traitor. And here the Lord Jesus Christ has spent all night in prayer to God, deciding which of the 70 plus men were going to be his final 12 apostles, which means they were sent. An apostle has been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no apostles today. There are no prophets today. There are only disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And I will just add a very quick final footnote in reference to the apostles. These men were chosen in time, not for their salvation, but for their service. The Lord, one more time, prayed all night to the Father to decide which of the 70 plus men 
were going to be called his apostles. They were chosen for service, not salvation. 17. And he came down with them, and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people, out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases, and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Those that came to be healed of the Lord Jesus Christ were always healed. If you come across so-called healers today, that go around the world healing, the people go to their crusades, sick, and leave sick, and then these healers, so-called, have the audacity to turn around and say that those that went to be healed did not have enough faith to be healed, should not only be ashamed of themselves, but that should be proof in and of itself how they are not of God. Those that came to be healed were always healed by the Lord and his apostles. Today's so-called healers are fakes. They are not of God. Verse 19. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and healed them all. All without exception were healed. One more time, those that came to be healed were always without exception healed. You won't find this anywhere in the world today. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, a physical kingdom at the second coming, but for here and now we live in a spiritual kingdom. And this reference to being poor could be a physical poorness, a literal poorness, a financial poorness, but at the same time it could also be a spiritual poorness. You are poor in spirit. And he says, Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. Salvation for these people living here and there, and salvation for us today. 21. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. It's good to laugh, and it's also good to weep. Weep over your sins, and laugh at the same time. Hunger could be a physical hunger, but more likely to be a spiritual hunger. You are hungering for the kingdom of God to arrive. You are hungering for a greater sense of holiness and for a greater understanding of the word of God. Verse 22. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. This is happening every day of the week, not just in the Middle East, where Muslims are becoming Christians, but even in the West. Say people in the West are suffering because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. People are separating them from their company, in their families, in their workplace, and among their friends and associates. It will cost you something to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to take a public stand for him. 23. Rejoice ye in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Here he is really speaking to Israel, 
but at the same time we can take this to be a spiritual application for those of us living today. 24. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. These people could have been financially wealthy, and yet at the same time they could have been spiritually wealthy, at least in their own eyes. They could have had an appearance of being self-sufficient, but in reality they were barren. And he says, you have received your consolation. 25. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Some people give the appearance of having everything, and some people seem to have an abundance of everything, and for some people life seems to have been very good to them. But the Lord says, Ye, plural, shall mourn and weep. The day is coming when you will hunger. 26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. When a famous so-called Christian dies, just listen out for the words of unsaved politicians, pop stars, or even members of the royal family. When a pope dies, you'll be amazed at how much praise he receives. But this is nothing new. The Lord said this happened to the false prophets in the Old Testament. Birds of a feather flock together. The world love their own. 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Never return evil for evil, love those that despise you, pray for those that come against you. The Lord Jesus Christ did so, and we too are expected to follow his example. 29. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. This is really in reference to soul winning. Those of us that go on the streets will be spoken to in a harsh way. We may be buffeted, we may be pushed, we may be spat on, we may even possibly be physically assaulted. This is not in reference to a nation's security, but a Christian's testimony a Christian's witness to the world. And he says here, turn the other cheek. The Lord Jesus Christ took physical abuse. He was physically assaulted and he turned the other cheek. The apostles were also physically harmed and they did not fight back. So here, if you are a soul winner, you are expected to turn the other cheek. And yet at the same time, I do believe you are entitled to defend yourself. Within reason, of course, you're not to be a brawler. You're not expected to go out and be physically violent. 30. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. This is really primarily Old Testament teachings for the most part, and yet at the same time we can take a spiritual application from this. Some Christian dispensationalists believe this is primarily in reference to the millennial reign. But at the same time, I still believe that some of this can be taken in a spiritual sense. If you're able to give an item of clothing to someone who wants it, let him or her have it. Why do you need it if they need it more than you?
you should be prepared to put the needs of others before yourself. 32. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. You have to be different from unsaved people. 33. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. A saved man or woman should be very different to an unsaved man or woman. This isn't rocket science, and I still believe we can take much spiritual application from these verses. 34. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners, to receive as much again. Mankind is very greedy. The banks are very good at putting interest on a loan. And here the Lord is calling for those that are going to follow him to be different. 35. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful, and to the evil. He does love the world, but his love is conditional. And here you are told once again to love your enemies and to do good, and to lend, hoping for nothing again. And yes, we appreciate, of course, that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the Jews under the law with a futuristic application in reference, of course, to the millennial reign. I don't dispute that, but at the same time, I still think we can take much from these verses and apply it spiritually, of course, to us living today in the church age. And at the same time, what you won't find in these verses is the plan of salvation. To keep these verses will not save you. These verses are primarily dealing with works once a person has been saved. 36. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. God is not your Father until you are born again. Jesus Christ is speaking to the Jews under the law. Technically, God was their father, but at the same time, many of them did not even know God as their father. They were spiritual Jews, but their hearts had not been circumcised. So be careful when you read these verses, how you apply it, how you practice it, how you preach these verses to others. 37. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, withal it shall be measured to you again. Matthew chapter 7 speaks against hypocritical judging. If you were to judge person A, B or C for a particular sin that you too are committing, that is condemned in scripture. The same sort of language is found here. 39. And he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? Of course. Sort yourself out first and then you will be able to assist another party. Verse 40. The disciple is not above his master, 
but every one that is perfect shall be as his master. The popes of Rome are very good at living in castles, as are many televangelists, as are many so-called Protestant scholars. But here the disciple is not above his master, in reference, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow his example, but of course we will always fail, because we are human. But we desire to be like him. He lived a very simple and humble life. And for those of us which are born again, we too must try to follow his example, to be a good testimony to the lost, and also to encourage the brethren. Verse 41. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Back to Matthew chapter 7, and also Revelation chapter 2. In fact, judgment throughout the Old and New Testament is upheld, providing it's not hypocritical judgment. But deal with the beam in your own eye before dealing with the mote that's in your brother's eye. In other words, put your house in order before you step in and offer advice to a brother or sister. 42. Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Righteous judgment is upheld in both testaments. But we saw from verse 39 how the blind lead the blind, and they both fall into the ditch. So 42 follows on from 39. Deal with the sin in your own life before offering to deal with the sin in someone else's life. This is common sense. This is why we can take this in a spiritual sense. 43. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruits. For of thorns men do gather figs, not of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. This very much pictures a saved man and an unsaved man. A good man will have a good testimony and he will be a good tree. An evil man will have an ungodly testimony and his fruit is evil. At the same time you cannot take these verses to somehow prove that a saved man or woman does not have an old nature after they are saved, of course, because we discover very clearly in Philippians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 7 how a saved party will continue to battle their old nature right up until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 46 And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus Christ goes on to say that those that do the will of his Father are his people, are his brethren. And the will of the Father, according to John chapter 6, is to believe on him. 47. Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will shew you of whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house, and dig deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth, and doeth not, 
is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great the rock in verse 28 is jesus christ of course to build on jesus christ means you will always have a sure and a solid and a permanent foundation but the earth in verse 49 is like the sand found in matthew chapter 7 and cephas in aramaic means sand simon peter in aramaic means sand so don't build your foundation on simon peter the so-called first pope of the roman catholic church build your foundation on the lord jesus christ luke chapter seven now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people he entered into capernaum if you were to be granted an audience with the queen or the prime minister or a pop star or a movie star or someone of great importance you would never forget it and here these people had experienced an audience with the lord jesus christ something you would never forget and yet at the same time many people believed on him but by acts chapter one only 120 people lasted the course verse two and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die and when he heard of jesus he sent unto him the elders of the jews beseeching him that he would come and heal his servants whether you believed in the lord jesus christ or not he was well known for being a great miracle maker he healed people left right and center and here a servant of a centurion was sick and ready to die the ministry of the lord jesus christ was to heal those that were sick to give salvation to those that would receive it and also to preach the gospel he was first and foremost sent to the jews but here his ministry has taken a slight diversion this centurion was a gentile who no doubt converted to judaism hence why the jews have approached the lord jesus christ look at verse four and when they came to jesus they besought him instantly saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this for he loveth our nation and he hath built us a synagogue you can never love the jews enough you were told to stand with israel you were told to pray for israel look at verse six then jesus went with them and when he was now not far from the house the centurion sent friends to him saying unto him lord trouble not thyself for i am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof wherefore neither thought i myself worthy to come unto thee but say in a word and my servant shall be healed this man was very humble and at the same time he saw his sin he said i'm not worthy to come to you in fact you are not worthy to even enter into my house but thanks be to god that the lord god of the bible took on human form and came to seek and to save that which was lost he says in verse seven just say a word and my servant shall be healed in the beginning was the word and the word was with god in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth he spoke the universe into being and here he's saying just say a word and my servant shall be healed verse eight for i also am a man set under authority having under me soldiers and i say unto one go and he goeth and to another come and he cometh and to my servant do this and he doeth it when jesus heard these things he marvelled at him 
and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. There's a rebuke to unbelieving Israel. This man, as I say, was a Gentile who converted to Judaism. And the Lord is commending this man for his faith, for his humility, and for his love for the people of Israel, and vicariously for the Lord God of the Bible. 10. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. The word of the Lord is powerful. The written word of the Lord transforms the souls of mankind. And here, the spoken word of the Lord Jesus Christ has healed a servant of this centurion. The will of the Lord is to save mankind from his sin. And here, the will of the Lord was to heal this centurion's servant. And no doubt, salvation came to the house of this centurion and also his servant. Also from verses 1 down to 10, we find a picture of the Lord's ministry to the Gentiles as well. In John chapter 10, he speaks about having other sheep that are not yet of his flock, in reference to the Gentiles, of course. But for the most part, the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Luke are looking primarily at the Jewish Messiah coming to the people of Israel to heal them and to grant them everlasting life, if they would believe on him. And here the centurion has humbled himself, and the Lord Jesus Christ has commended him for doing so. Verse 11. And it came to pass the day after, that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. We saw it very clearly in chapter 6, how the Lord Jesus Christ had at least 70 plus men that he could have called upon to become his 12 apostles. And in the end, he chose 12 from the 70. And I believe that Dr. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, was one of the 70. But here his ministry has gone from Capernaum in verse 1 to Nain in verse 11. 12. Now when he was come nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up, and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. This man was dead. He wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. There was no faith here on the part of the man or even on his mother. The Lord Jesus Christ took it upon himself to resurrect this dead man. Sometimes people say you need to have faith in order to be healed. This clearly is not the case. But you do need faith in order to be saved. 16. And there came a fear on all. And they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And here, they're not far in recognizing that Jesus Christ was a great prophet. But he's far more than just a prophet. He's also the son of God. And also from here, this term fear, once again, almost pictures a paradox. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to be fearful here is quite understandable, because the Lord God of the Bible, the only true God in the universe, has stepped into time and healed a man right under the eyes of the people of Israel. 
but they glorified God, which was the point of the miracle, saying that God had visited his people. 17. And this rumour of him went forth throughout all Judea, and throughout all the region round about. The reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ was known abroad. Herod knew who he was, Pilate knew who he was, and I believe the Apostle Paul also knew who he was. But at this point in the Lord's ministry, he is not interested in being made the king of the Jews, or coming as a son of David. That will be at the second coming. At this point in time, he's coming to seek and to save that which was lost, and he's coming to suffer and eventually die for the sins of Israel. If you go back to the Old Testament, the prophets, when they wrote about the coming Messiah, couldn't and did not distinguish between the first and second coming. And the reason why the Jews could not understand the difference between the first and second coming was because the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected by the Jews on the cross, and he was rejected again in Acts chapter 7. So the Lord, via the apostles, turns to the Gentiles. 18. And the disciples of John shewed him of all these things. They too knew what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing, and by this point in time John is being held in jail, awaiting death. 19. And John calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? They too couldn't understand the difference between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to overthrow the Roman Empire and to initiate his literal Davidic kingdom. Hence why John is saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, Are you the one that should come, or should we be looking for another? At the same time, there's a picture here of John being slightly offended because he had a great ministry up until the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I showed you last time how John's ministry and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ was limited. 20. When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? They too, like John the Baptist, did not really understand the Lord's ministry. Son of Joseph, first coming. Son of David, second coming. 21. And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. He's now going to do miracles in the presence of the disciples of John to strengthen them and also to strengthen John's faith who is perhaps hours away from being martyred. 22. Then Jesus, answering, said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how the blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. There's a picture one more time of John, being slightly ashamed or offended in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. John wasn't perfect. He was a sinner, and here his cousin, his second cousin to be precise, is going to die for the sins of John the Baptist. But look at 22 one more time. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. 
Who else in the history of the world has ever done miracles such as this? You will struggle to find anyone that comes anywhere near the ministry and person and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. John told us how he was not worthy to tie the shoes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here at the same time, he is awaiting death and he is confused as to who the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. His understanding was limited as was Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? He understands our infirmities. He understands our failure to grasp just who he is. And the apostles would ask him to increase their faith, to open the scriptures to them. For us living today, we can call on the name of the Lord and we can ask him to open the scriptures to us, to really reveal the written word of God and the power of the scripture. Also from 23, this expression to be offended or to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ is found in Second Timothy chapter 2. Take a look at verse 11, please. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Here the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that those of us that have died with him, meaning we have died to ourselves, we were buried with him and later resurrected, are also going to live with him physically and literally for here and now we are living with him spiritually in the kingdom of god but we are going to live with him practically and literally at the second coming but he goes on to say in verse 12 if we suffer as christians we shall also reign with him in reference to the millennial kingdom of course but if we deny him he also will deny us in reference to the millennial kingdom many of us are not going to go into the millennial kingdom but 13, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Whatever mistake you make, he cannot deny himself. If you are born again, you will always be born again. Once saved, always saved, or if saved, always saved, is something that I very much believe. John wasn't chastised for this moment of weakness. But at the same time, the Lord Jesus Christ took his doubts, his fears, and turned it into a blessing. Please turn back to Luke chapter 7, verse 23, one more time. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Timothy was ashamed at the ministry and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul dealt with that, and Timothy would go on to do great things for the Lord Jesus Christ. From time to time, Christians are going to be offended at the person and ministry and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ is understandable. But at the same time, if it becomes an ongoing problem, you need to repent and come back to your first love. 24. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled, and live delicately, are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. 
Now the Lord Jesus Christ is turning to the people because perhaps they too had doubts and concerns as to the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But take a look at verse 25 again, please. But what went ye, all of you, out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. The Lord Jesus Christ was king of the Jews, but he certainly did not live in a palace, a castle. He dressed like everybody else dressed. And today you have people going around wearing a dog collar, a mitre on their head, and a long robe. He would never have dressed like that. He was one of the people. But what went he out for to see? 26. A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. Here he is affirming that he is a prophet, but much more than a prophet. But again, he dressed like everybody else dressed. And he most certainly did not live like royalty. He denied himself, as you too must do, to become a faithful disciple. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and put others before you. 27. This is he, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The Lord Jesus Christ is now quoting Malachi chapter 3, in reference to John the Baptist's arrival to prepare a way for the Lord God, Jehovah God. Jesus Christ is one more time affirming deity. 28. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why? Because John the Baptist preached about the kingdom of God. But those that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks to John the Baptist, went in to the kingdom of God and became greater than John the Baptist. He was martyred. He did not see the physical arrival of the kingdom of God. But those that believed on John and got saved through the ministry of John the Baptist became greater thanks to the ministry of John the Baptist. So one more time, the Lord Jesus Christ is commending John for his ministry and doing what he did so faithfully. And at the same time, he is warning people about unbelief and failure to understand the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 29, and all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. Many came to be baptized, many believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But by Acts chapter 1, only 120 people were in the upper room with the apostles and disciples, and Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who interestingly is listed in 13th place. She was not the queen of heaven. She was a remarkable woman. But she was waiting very patiently with the apostles in Acts chapter 1 for the Holy Spirit to fall on her. Because she too was a recipient of grace, not a dispenser. But these verses, if I was to sum them up in reference to John's ministry and his failure at times to understand the two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ is quite understandable. And the Lord Jesus Christ took John's inability to fully comprehend his ministry and turned it into a blessing for John. He commends John in 28. Among those which have been born of women, 
There is none greater than John the Baptist. What a remarkable thing to say concerning his second cousin. And at the same time, those that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks to his second cousin, are greater than John the Baptist. But look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Through their free will, they decided not to be baptized by John in the River Jordan in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. That's their own free will. Yes, it was known, of course, back in the Old Testament through the foreknowledge of Almighty God, but they rejected Jesus Christ in time through their own free will, found very clearly here in verse 30. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Jesus Christ has taken their own literal words and used them against themselves. In Matthew chapter 12, he said every word would be heard and every word and deed would be presented to the Lord God of the Bible at the great white throne judgment. By your words, you are justified and by your words, you are condemned. These self-righteous and ungodly Pharisees in verse 33 thought that John the Baptist had a devil. They also thought the same about the Lord Jesus Christ. By 34, they said Jesus Christ was a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Why? Because he was friends with publicans and sinners. But he wasn't a gluttonous man and he wasn't a wine-bibber. He associated with those that wanted to be associated with him. But the Pharisees despised it. Because one more time, they felt threatened by the Lord's ministry. In their minds, they thought that if people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they, the Pharisees, would lose their standing and privileges among the nation of Israel, from the Romans, and of course from the temple. They couldn't comprehend, in a sense, being out of business. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. The law was only a temporary aspect in the plan of the Lord God of the Bible reaching out to mankind to save mankind. The law simply pointed man to his sin and need of a saviour. But the Pharisees could not see it as the priests of Rome today cannot see it, as the vicars of the Church of England cannot see it, as the men and women in the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ or the Watchtower in Brooklyn cannot see it either. Salvation, if you did not know, is in a person, Jesus Christ, not in a system. And from verses 31 down to 34, we discover again the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows your thoughts. He sees your deeds. Nothing gets past him. And here he has taken the words and thoughts of the unbelieving Pharisees, scribes and lawyers, and he has turned them against them. Like the Bible, everything that we read on many occasions covers some pretty minute details. Nothing gets past God, and the same will be true at the great white throne judgment. 
Nothing will get past God. Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointments, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor, which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he, to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman, and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Verses 36 down to 50 clearly outlines how justification in the sight of man produces works, whereas justification in the sight of God produces salvation. Please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Look at verse 7, please. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Here we discover Samuel has been sent to the house of Jesse, the father of King David. And Samuel had no idea which one the Lord had chosen to be the future king of Israel. And here the Lord God makes it very clear how the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance in reference to one's works, whereas the Lord looks on the heart. Please turn to Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed, he received, and he was justified. He was exonerated in the presence of God. Verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, 
but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And God sees the heart of the repentant sinner. And only God sees the heart of the repentant sinner. And God saves that sinner by believing on the Lord God of the Bible. And here Abraham believed on the Lord God of the Bible. And the Lord saw his faith and counted it to him for righteousness. Please turn to James chapter 2. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Abraham's been saved pre this description of Abraham about to offer his son up on the altar. Justification by works in the sights of men, i.e. Abraham's servants, i.e. Abraham's son, Isaac. 22. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. His faith produced works. Works on their own will not save you. Once you are born again, your faith will produce works, which is proof that you are born again. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us how we have been saved by grace, and that not of ourselves, but how we have been saved unto good works after we are saved. So go back to Luke chapter 7 very briefly in verses 36 down to 50. Picture a woman who has been saved for a period of time and her faith has drawn her unto the Lord. And she walks into the room of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Pharisees and his guest, which would have taken great faith. And she has sat down and wept, and washed his feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. That took great faith and humility. The Pharisees were incredulous, because she was a sinner, an immoral woman. But she was a saved sinner. And he says in verse 50, Thy faith hath saved thee, the just shall live by faith. She believed on him, and her faith produced these works. And he says, Go in peace. P-E-A. C-E. We have peace with God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Next up, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and shewing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. The Lord Jesus Christ was a travelling rabbi, and according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he was entitled to financial support. Today that would be the equivalent of supporting a front-line Bible-believing ministry. And here, Mary called Magdalene, had seven devils cast out of her. Not five devils, not six devils, but seven devils. The attention to detail once again reflects just how thorough the Lord is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ for the born-again Bible believer or the great white throne judgment for the unsaved man or woman. She was possessed and the Lord Jesus Christ delivered her. Also from verse 3, Joanna 
the wife of Cusa, who was Herod's steward, was a believer. The Lord's ministry had penetrated right up to the office of Herod. But there's no evidence to suggest that Joanna's husband was saved. Only she was saved, along with Susanna. When the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, all of the apostles but one departed. But the women were faithful right up until the end. When the Lord Jesus Christ came up out of the tomb, the first person that saw him was Mary Magdalene. Not Pope Peter, quote-unquote, and not Mary, the Queen of Heaven, quote-unquote. It was Mary Magdalene who saw the risen Christ first of all. The twelve from verse one are the apostles, of course, and if you missed it, from verse one, the Lord Jesus Christ once again is out and about on the streets. He's going from city to city, village to village. His ministry was out and about in the open. He did nothing in secret, unlike the Freemasons, unlike all secret societies. He was about as transparent as one could possibly be. Verse 4. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it, and choked it. And other fell on good ground, and sprang up, and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The reason for the parable, for the most part, was because those that were in the proximity of the Lord Jesus Christ were unbelieving Jews, Pharisees, scribes, enemies of the cross. But his message really will be for the apostles and for those that are going to believe on him. 9. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? The apostles were not infallible. Papal infallibility is a myth. It's a farce. It's a heresy. And here the apostles needed the master to expound the scripture to them. Look at verse 10. And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. This goes back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Isaiah to be precise, which spoke which prophesied about the blindness of Israel. And if you are on the streets today, and you meet someone, and you speak to that person, and they cannot receive the message, or they will not receive the message, then perhaps the message of God is not for them either. Maybe they too have been blinded. Maybe they have been handed over to Satan. Ephesians chapter 4. But at the same time, you have to pray for those people, and then move on to somebody else who wants to hear the gospel, who is interested in the things of God. Your time is precious. And here the Lord Jesus Christ made it very clear how the apostles had been chosen to receive the message, but those outside of his inner circle had not been chosen to receive the message. 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Satan's job is to destroy Bible-believing 
Christians. He can't succeed at that because the Lord Jesus Christ, as our High Priest, is praying for us all of the time. So it's even more important for those of us which are saved to pray for other potential believers. Because Satan and his minions will do all they can to take away the seed that has been planted by the sower. Being of course the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no roots, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they, which when they have heard, go forth, and are choked with cares, and riches, and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. 13 down to 15, as far as I am concerned, can be applied spiritually to Christians in the church age today. You need to make your calling and election sure. Make sure you have truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you have truly understood what he did for us on the cross. Examine yourself in light of scripture. Never lose the simplicity of Christ. And once you are born again, continue to walk with him in the spirit. Read the word of God each and every day. Lose unsaved family and friends, if necessary. Grow in grace, and all the things of the world will evaporate before your very eyes. Also, before I move on to verse 16, please turn to Deuteronomy 32. Look at verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity. Just and right is he. The rock here is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul spoke about the rock of salvation. King David followed the rock. Matthew chapter 7, the Lord spoke about building your house on the rock. In reference, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 31. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of dragons, and the cool venom of asps. Their rock is not our rock, lower R in reference quite possibly and prophetically to Simon Peter, the so-called first pope of Rome. Their rock, lowercase r, is not as our rock, capital R in reference to Jesus Christ. Their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah, in reference to the mass of the Roman Catholic Church. Jump down to 37, please. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices, and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you, and be your protection. Your gods, where are they? Your rock, in whom you trusted, the gods here, I believe, could be in reference to the saints of the Roman Catholic Church. We have Mary, we have the Mass, we have the Pope, we have St. Christopher, we have St. Jude, we have St. Catherine praying for us. And the Lord here says rather sarcastically, where are your gods and the rock in whom you trusted? In reference, I believe, 
quite possibly, to Simon Peter. He goes on to say in verse 38, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings in reference to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and in reference to the communion, the so-called body of the Lord Jesus Christ, their mass, so-called, transubstantiation, as I like to call it. They believe that the priest can call Jesus Christ whenever he wishes to, to sacrifice Christ afresh. And here, Deuteronomy 32, I believe, is speaking about this type of heresy. But this rock here is condemned as being a false rock. The true rock is Jesus Christ, not Simon Peter. Please turn back to Luke chapter 8, verse 16. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. As a Bible-believing Christian, your testimony should shine. Once you were born again, you wanted the whole world to know about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the written word of God. So in a nutshell, verses 16 and 17 simply refer to the fact that there are no secret service Bible-believing Christians. Eventually, you will open your mouth and you will preach the gospel to your friends, family, neighbours, or even co-workers. 18. Take heed therefore how ye hear, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. It's a paradox, and yet it is very true. What you have will be taken from you, and what you have not will be given to you. 19. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. Mother Mary and his brothers have arrived, and yet Mary, as his mother, could not even get to him because of the press. The people, of course, are gathering around him. This term Mother Mary is used by the Roman Catholics in reference to their adoration of her, but she is never once called Mother Mary. She's called woman, and here she's called his mother. And his brethren, his brothers and sisters too, are following her to see and to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. 20. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. His own family were not given exclusive access to him. They were standing outside, wanting to see him. Look at 21. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. No special place or privilege for his mother and brethren. My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God and do it. In reference to believing on him, John chapter 6. Believing on him as the Messiah and trusting in him as the Saviour, which at this point in time his brothers were not quite ready to do. But his mother was still grasping, his mother too was still growing in grace. She wasn't infallible, she was not omnipresent or omniscient 
or omnipotent. She was just an ordinary woman, 15, when she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, several years have passed, and she is still in her physical body. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Mary was no exception. She too needed a saviour to save her, and she too needed a son to grow her in grace. Verse 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. Jesus Christ once again has found himself entering into a ship. Captain of our salvation. And here picturing Captain Noah as well. 23. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water, and were in jeopardy. The Son of Man here is tired, and he is asleep, but the Son of God walks on water. 24. And they came to him, and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose, and rebuked the wind, and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Son of God, you can't miss it. His two natures found within three verses. 25. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they being afraid, wandered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him, because he is God Almighty. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And here he has deliberately fallen asleep to test their faith. And no doubt Satan was behind this great wind, this great tempest, which came on the river, the lake, to test their faith. Also 25 seems to mirror verse 9. What might this parable be? What manner of man is this? The apostles were still growing in grace. Again, there was no infallibility here. What manner of man is this? Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ is man. 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gadareans, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. Demon possession was endemic during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ was the Holy One of Israel. He was Jehovah God. And these devils were working overtime to thwart his ministry. But he came to heal people of sicknesses, to cast out devils from unclean people, and at the same time to offer everlasting life for those that would believe on him and receive him. This man had been possessed, and he was hanging around tombs, graveyards. Most of the heavy metal music that you see today reflects this love of death and Satanism and spirits, and ghosts. The paranormal in general is so popular today, but it's all of Satan. 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. What a powerful scripture. What have I to do with thee, Jesus? Thou Son of God Most High. This unclean spirit knew exactly whom the Lord Jesus Christ was. 
I beseech thee, I beg thee, torment me not. Because a day is coming when Satan and his minions are going to be cast alive into the lake of fire. And they will be tormented day and night forever. But here he speaks with a loud voice. I showed you last time in the earlier chapters of the Gospel of Luke how those that are filled with the Holy Spirit spoke with a loud voice. And here this unclean spirit is also speaking with a loud voice. 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. Not a devil, but the devil. This man was kept bound, shackled. He was a prisoner. He was a slave of Satan. 30. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. Legion would be six thousand. Six thousand devils had infested, had infected, had possessed this man. And he was totally taken over by his unclean spirits. 31. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there an herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. He allowed them. Swine, pigs, unclean animals. 33. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. It's quite right to be fearful, to see a man who had been possessed for many years, to be cleared, to be set free at the word of the Lord. He's gone from being tormented to being set free. And he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Humility. And this man quite possibly has also been regenerated by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But above all, he's been set free and he's now in his right mind. And they were afraid. In Mark chapter 5, they even asked the Lord to leave, which shows just how depraved mankind is. When mankind meets deity, if his heart has not been prepared by the Lord God of the Bible, the chances are he is going to reject the Lord God of the Bible. Mankind, for the most part, does not want God. Mankind, for the most part, is at enmity with God. But thanks be to God that God Almighty, in the person of Jesus Christ, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadareans round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. The Lord Jesus Christ is a gentleman. He stands and knocks at the door, but he expects you to open the door to him. He won't come unto you until you come to him. 38. Now the man, out of whom the devils were departed, besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and shew how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way, and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. 
19. The Press. 39. Published. The Print Press. I'm going to publish a story about you. The Press. The Media. But here in verse 39, this man was told to go up to a city, to go to his own house, and show them what great things God had done for them. It was more important for this man to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ than it was for the Lord Jesus Christ to go up and tell them about himself. Because the people of the Gadareans had asked him to leave. And one more time, Jesus Christ is a gentleman. He will never force himself on you. And he never forced himself on the people of Israel, or the Gentiles for that matter. 40. And it came to pass, that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. One door closed, and another opened for him. If you have spent much time witnessing to unsaved people, and they just don't seem to be interested, turn to those that are. There are many more fish in the sea. But here the Lord's ministry was temporarily put on hold as far as the people of the Gadareans were concerned. But once he left there and departed, he was gladly received. He came unto his own, the Jews, but his own, the Jews, received him not. But some did, but for the most, many did not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the power, the authority to be called the sons of God. Verse 41, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet, and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him, and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her issue of blood stanched. This girl is about twelve years of age, and this woman has been suffering for twelve years, and no physician could heal her. She has spent all her living trying to be made whole, trying to be made well. And as the Lord is going up to Jairus's house to heal his daughter, this woman appears from nowhere desperate to be healed. 45. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee, and press thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? He's trying to draw her out of the crowd. He's trying to draw her faith out from her. He knows, of course, who has touched him, but he wants her to come forward. He wants the apostles to see this wonderful miracle. 46. And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately, without exception. Nobody came to the Lord Jesus Christ to be healed who was not healed. And it was always straight away, immediately. You won't find this anywhere in the world today. These so-called faith healers are fakes. They are serpents. They are slaves of Satan. And they are false brethren. But here the Lord Jesus Christ healed this woman straight away. But she is terrified. She is fearful. Because it's quite normal 
once you've been healed of something as severe as this, to then be presented whole to the creator of the universe. Look at 48. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Your faith saved you from your sins, and her faith saved her from her issue of blood twelve years. Her physical ailment was healed by her faith in the Lord God of the Bible. Also of interest to me, he calls her daughter. Isaiah chapter 9, he's called the everlasting father. He's not God the father, but in a spiritual sense, he is father to Israel. Here he calls her daughter, and I believe she was older than him. Later, he calls a man son. Later, he calls his apostles children. He is fulfilling, therefore, one of the prophecies from Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 49. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. The just shall live by faith, in reference to your salvation, but here, your faith, their faith, our faith, can do all things, if it is the will of the Lord. And here, it was the Lord's will for this young child to be healed. Hence why Jesus said, Fear not, believe only. Look at 51. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. Peter, James and John were handpicked to see many of the most intimate miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were taken up to see the transfiguration. And here he wants Peter, James and John to see this wonderful miracle. Peter is given a new name. James and John are given new names as well, which in biblical times nearly always meant something special was going to come from these people once the Lord had finished with them. Meaning once the Lord Jesus Christ had gone back to heaven, Peter, of course, was going to be one of the great church leaders. Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost. John, of course, would be the custodian of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And James was going to be martyred by Acts chapter 12. But he wants Peter, James and John to see one of his most intimate and sacred miracles concerning a young 12-year-old girl. 52. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. She was physically dead, like Lazarus was in John chapter 11. And she was waiting to be resurrected, as was a boy from Nain, as was Lazarus. 53. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. Typical response of unsaved people, they laughed him to scorn. They failed to understand what he was about to do. And that's why Jesus told the apostles, and vicariously, all of us, back in verse 10, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Never cast your pearls before swine. 54. And he put them all out, and took her by the hand, and called, saying, Maid, arise. In Mark chapter 5, he says, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic, for little child, 
I say to your eyes. Fifty-five, and her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. She wasn't resuscitated, she was resurrected. Hence why he says, give her food to eat. Fifty-six, and her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. She was only twelve years old. He didn't want people travelling far and wide to see the resurrection of this young child. He came to heal her because Jairus was a leader of the synagogue, quite possibly a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But he came unto them nevertheless. And here this young girl has been resurrected not resuscitated, but resurrected. She was physically dead, but by the word of the Lord, he resurrected her. 54. Maid, arise. Talitha kumi, rise up and have some food to build yourself up. Next up, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when ye go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet, for a testimony against them. And they departed, and went through the towns, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. Verses 1 to chapter 6, in Luke chapter 9, we discover the Lord Jesus Christ sending the twelve disciples to the people of Israel, not to preach the gospel to them, but to heal them. This was a one-off ministry. It never happened before, and it never happened again. Verse 1, he gave the apostles authority, power over all devils and to cure diseases. Verse 3, he says, don't take anything with you. Don't take any staves nor scrip, not even bread or money. Don't even take two coats. Just go as you are. The only verse you could take from this piece of scripture and apply it spiritually to the church today would be verse 5. And whosoever will not receive you when ye go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. If you preach the gospel to person A, B or C, and they will not receive it, turn around and walk off and go to someone else. If they too will not receive it, go to someone else. And if they won't receive it, verse 5, one more time, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. But apart from verse 5, verses 1, 2, 3 and 4 are exclusively for the Jewish disciples being sent by the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias had appeared, and of others, that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this, of whom I hear such things? 
and he desired to see him. For the wrong reasons, of course. His heart was not right. He didn't really want to receive the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to do signs and wonders in his presence. And the Lord Jesus Christ condemned that evil and perverse generation that sought a sign. And yet saying that, the Jews were entitled to receive a sign from the Lord. But Herod was not a Jew, he was a Gentile. And he beheaded John the Baptist. And we think of people today that go around beheading so-called infidels. And we think of Islam, the religion which follows the moon god. They too behead their enemies. But here Herod was a wicked Gentile dictator. He married his brother's wife. And he also had thoughts and feelings for his wife's daughter. He was a wicked man. And he is most certainly a type of the Antichrist. Also from verses 7 down to 9, there's a suggestion, perhaps, that Herod believed in reincarnation, not resurrection. Once again, just showing how ignorant he was of the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. Verse 10, And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them, and went aside privately into a desert place, belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. If you lived around this time, 27, 28 AD, and you wanted to be healed of any illness, of any ailment, to be set free from any devil, you went to the man from Galilee, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone that came to him to be healed was healed without exception. But you won't find that anywhere today. The Apostle Paul sought the Lord's mercy. He begged the Lord's mercy three times to take the thorn out of his flesh. And the Lord refused to do so. Timothy also was very sick and he had to take wine for his ulcer, perhaps. He was not healed. Paul was not healed. But for here and now, Everyone that came to be healed was healed without exception. Clearly two dispensations. Here we find the Jewish Messiah coming to the people of Israel that are all living under the law. This is pre the New Testament being written and they are receiving healing. And for some even salvation. But go to the New Testament later on, post the book of Acts, post Acts chapter 16 to be more precise and the healings have started to drop off. Why? Because the New Testament had been written. And Paul told us in Romans chapter 1 how the just shall live by faith. And I will say this very briefly, if I may. The greatest gift that the Lord God of the Bible can give any man or woman or child since the completion of the New Testament is regeneration. To make a man, a woman or a child alive from within. To make dead men alive. To revive mankind. Tongues were for a sign to the unbelieving Jews. Tongues were a rebuke to unbelieving Israel. Prophecy per se, foretelling a future, ended with the apostles. But to prophesy in a sense of proclaiming, or to sing psalms, or to worship the Lord, is still very much in play for today. But one more time. The just shall live by faith, not by sight. Take a look at verse 12, please. And when the day began to wear away, 
then came the twelve, and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about, and lodge, and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. Here we find the apostles telling, almost instructing, the Lord Jesus Christ to send the multitude away. And we learn from that very simply that they are still here at this point in time, very carnal, immature, still very much in need to have someone hold their hand. 13. But he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. He's about to perform a miracle, the feeding of the five thousand. And yet, if you add up the wives that were present and the children that were present, you are looking at at least 15,000 people. And yet the apostles still fail to grasp the enormity of what the Lord is about to do. 14. For they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, and brake, and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. Here the disciples are going to wait on 15,000 people. It's a sign of humility. These men were still jockeying for positions. We find that later on in scripture, which of them would be the greatest. And here he's going to allow his apostles, his disciples, to act as waiters in a sense. 17. And they did eat, and were all filled. And there was taken up of fragments that remained to them twelve baskets. More than enough food left over and twelve baskets here, no doubt, are going to be for the twelve apostles. They told the Lord, they instructed the Lord from verse 12 to send the multitude away. And he took those words and turned it around into a blessing. And the apostles were told to feed the 20,000 people. A great picture of humility. Just before I move on to verse 18, I want to add a quick footnote in reference to Herod beheading John the Baptist, found very clearly in verse 9. And we know according to the book of Revelation that during the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to behead the true Bible-believing Christian. And some people believe that the Antichrist could be Islamic. I'm not so sure, but he will use that brutal form of execution, which we have come accustomed to seeing over the last 10 years or so in Syria and Iraq and other parts of the Islamic world. So the Antichrist could be a type of Islamic terrorist, fundamentalist, extremist. But I still believe for the most part he will be a Jew, not a Muslim per se, but he will use whatever means he deems necessary to deal with those that truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them, and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. Here the Lord Jesus Christ has given a precise prophecy about how he is going to be killed. 
Muhammad could not do this. Buddha could not do this. Joseph Smith could not do this. Brigham Young could not do this. Charles Taze Russell could not do this. The Queen of England cannot do this. The American president cannot do this. The president of the European Union cannot do this either. But here the Lord Jesus Christ has done it. He has prophesied about how he is going to be killed. But this question back in 18 is addressed to all of the apostles. Whom do the people say that I am? He starts by asking all of the apostles, Whom do the people say that I am? And their responses are found in 19. John the Baptist, Elijah, and others say you're one of the old prophets who has been risen again. And then he asks all of them in 20. But whom say ye, plural, that I am? And Peter here speaking for all of the apostles says the Christ of God. In Matthew chapter 16, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the Roman Catholic Church believe that their church is built, literally, on Simon Peter. But the rock, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is simply commending Peter for what he has just said. And if it was so important... If Matthew chapter 16 was so important, if Matthew chapter 16 was as important as the Roman Catholic Church would have us believe, why does Dr. Luke leave that piece out? He only gives you half of Peter's reply. Clearly, Peter's reply and the Lord's commendation isn't as important as we have been led to believe by those in the Roman Catholic Church. But he says in verse 20, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter, as the eldest, quite clearly says, the Christ of God. John the Baptist was the first to affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then it was Andrew. Peter comes much later on. Martha affirmed his deity in John chapter 11. But Peter here is simply speaking on behalf of all of the apostles. And in Matthew chapter 16, one more time, Jesus Christ commends him. And based on his profession, he says, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, upon this foundation, upon what you've just told me, I am going to build my church. Not on you, Simon Peter, but on myself, of course. Deuteronomy 32, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The rock is deity. The rock is Jesus Christ, to be precise. 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged, if he gain the whole world, and lose himself, or be a castaway? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me, and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. Pick up your cross daily and follow me daily. Deny yourself daily. 23. If you try to save your life, 24, by not believing on me, you will lose it when you die. But if you believe on me, you will save it when you die. Once again, it's a paradox. 25. How is a man advantaged if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Some of these multi-millionaire, billionaire, trillionaires would do very well. To read these verses. How are you advantaged after 70, 80 or perhaps 90 years of living on planet earth, gaining the whole world and then dying and going to hell forever? 
You've had it all here and now, but you're going to lose it all when you die. Also from 23 down to 26, this picture is very much the shame, the stigma, the ridicule of following the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews thought it was ridiculous to have a crucified Messiah. In fact, the Jews thought it was something unbearable to have a crucified Messiah. And for the Gentiles, they couldn't fathom the purpose of sacrificing a sinless man for their sins. 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. I've spoken to people all over the UK who still think this is something impossible to fathom. Where is the justice, they ask me, in putting an innocent man to die on the cross for my sins or for your sins? And I tell them very simply that unless you are sinless, you will go to hell when you die. God is sinless. God cannot pardon sin. So he became a man and took on human form by becoming Jesus Christ, of course, and dying in our place. The judgments, the sin, the full penalty of God fell on Jesus Christ and he died for us in our very place. Take Jesus Christ out of the equation. You've got a big problem when you die and stand before him. He cannot behold sin. He cannot behold evil. He cannot behold iniquity. Something has to happen to you in order to survive in his presence. And that, of course, is Christ's imputed righteousness, which he gives to those that believe on him. And 26, one final time, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. That could be in reference to a Bible-believing Christian who temporarily falls away and goes on to lose his or her millennial inheritance, but more likely to be in reference to an unbelieving person who was ashamed, who was embarrassed to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore lost his soul when he died and went to hell. There are going to be many brave people so-called in hell, many tough guys in hell that didn't have the backbone to follow the Messiah, to follow the Lamb of God whithersoever he goeth. 27. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a physical kingdom and a spiritual kingdom. For those living today, we are in the spiritual kingdom. But when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth at the end of the great tribulation, Revelation 19, we come back with him because we were raptured before the beginning of the great tribulation. That will be a physical, literal, Davidic kingdom. King Jesus coming back to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. But for those of us living today, we are in the spiritual kingdom of God. Look at verse 28, please. And it came to pass, about and eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing 
what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close, and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. There's a picture of the kingdom of God, referred to as a transfiguration. And once again, Peter, John, and James have been handpicked to experience this incredible one-off appearing. Moses arrives as does Elijah. And Peter recognises Moses and Elijah, along with James and John, no doubt. Which makes it very clear that when we arrive in eternity, we too are going to recognise all of the greats that died before us. And also from verse 34, a cloud overshadows them, a picture of the Shahinah glory, the Holy Ghost to be precise. 35, a voice came from heaven, which said, This is my beloved Son, hear him, in reference to God the Father, proclaiming his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Hear him. Islam says if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are accursed. And here God commands it. Here God demands reverential faith and love and obedience to him. This voice came out of the cloud. One more time picturing the Shahina glory. You cannot separate the triunity of God. And verse 33, Jesus is very much the main focal point here. Not Moses or Elijah, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father's only begotten Son. And also from all of these verses, we discover very clearly how Peter, James and John got a glimpse of the kingdom of God. They got a glimpse of the second coming of Christ. And they did not die. If you go back to the Old Testament, man could not stand in the presence of God. Because God is holy, man is not holy. But on this occasion, these men, Peter, James and John, were supernaturally protected and given a glance, a glimpse, an experience of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, as I say, a literal kingdom of God with a literal king sitting on a literal throne on planet Earth. The New Jerusalem, to be precise, which comes after the Great Tribulation. And also one final point in reference to verse 33, how we discover Peter, the oldest, and also the most weakest of the disciples, saying, Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. Peter was very good at putting his foot in his mouth. And this is why the Lord spent so much time with Peter, trying to build him up to become a great leader in the early church. He failed so many times, and the Lord gave him so many chances to redeem himself. Jesus Christ is very much the Lord of second chances. Verse 37. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him. And he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, 
how long shall I be with you, and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down, and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and healed the child, and delivered him again to his father. Here we find the Lord Jesus Christ stepping into a situation and dealing with a demon-possessed child. And yes, children can be possessed by the devil. His disciples failed, perhaps because they were still immature, still carnal, still jockeying for positions in the future kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ steps in and rebukes this faithless and perverse generation, i.e. the people of Israel per se, but also his disciples are partly being rebuked here. Elsewhere in scripture they were told to pray and fast for that type of an unclean spirit to come out, to be set free. They were great conquerors in other parts of scripture, but for this point, at this time, they failed miserably. 43. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him of that saying. It was withheld from the apostles, just what exactly awaited the Lord Jesus Christ. He had told them on other occasions, but they could not receive it. They could not perceive just how bad it was going to be. Jesus Christ, as a spiritual father, was still protecting his little flock. He told them, but they couldn't really understand it, and nor would they want to truly understand just how much pain and suffering he was about to undergo. Isaiah chapter 9, one more time, spoke about Jesus being the everlasting father. And here Jesus, as their father, is protecting them, is looking over them, as you would expect him to do. Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Listen to me very carefully. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. He's prophesying, he is predicting how he is going to die. Nobody made him come to earth to die for the sins of the world. He volunteered to come to earth to die for our sins. What a magnificent saviour we have in Jesus. 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. You can't miss it. They are still very juvenile. They are still growing in grace. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as omniscient as he is, as understanding as he is, takes the bull by the horn. Look at verse 47. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him. And said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. This child could have been Peter's child, and it's so simple. In fact, it's something that probably Solomon would have done. He took a child from among them, and he said, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. 
in reference to God the Father. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. A child is very impressionable. A child can grasp great things from the Lord. And his apostles, for the most part, needed analogies such as this time after time until they understood just what was expected of them. This is why Jesus spent three and a half years on the earth. Not for the people of Israel, or the leaders, or the Pharisees, or the scribes, but for his little flock. Verse 49. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. A bit of denominational snobbery there, from the youngest apostle. Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. He's not in our church. He's not of our denomination. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, forbid him not. Don't forbid him, don't stop him. For he that is not against us is for us. You are either born again, or you are not. Pure and simple. 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went, and entered into a village of the Samaritans, to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven, and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. John messed up in verse 49, and here John and his brother James have messed up in verse 54. Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? And Jesus rebuked them, like he did with Peter in Matthew 16, Get thee behind me, Satan. And he says, Ye, plural, know not what manner of spirit ye all of you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What a rebuke! But it was needed, and it was done in love. And also from these verses, we find a stinging rebuke to the Roman Catholic Church, who killed 50 million people over 600 years under the orders of 80 popes. And also we find a rebuke to John Calvin's police state in Geneva. Bible-believing Christians don't force their beliefs on anyone. He came to set sinners free, not to consume sinners. And also from John chapter 4, other members of the Samaritan community believed him and received him. But this group of Samaritans did not. And the Lord said, fine, we will go to another village. And off they went. 57. And it came to pass, that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee, whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. 
Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plough, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Let the dead bury their dead. Your unsaved family are dead, not physically, but spiritually, of course. No man, having put his hand to the plough, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. A picture of Lot's wife. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is calling for immediate obedience and attention to the call of salvation and also to discipleship. He says in verse 60, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. It's all or nothing. And here the Lord Jesus Christ, one more time in 62, no man, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Make your calling and election sure. If your family are not saved, and if your family don't want to be saved, leave them behind and go on with the Lord Jesus Christ. Next up, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face, into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the labourers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labourers into his harvest. Chapter 10 builds on chapter 9. In chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ sends out the twelve. But here in chapter 10, he is sending out the seventy as well. And among the seventy, I believe, is Dr. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 2, the harvest truly is great, but the labourers are few. This could so easily be in reference to today, meaning that we are to go out into the highways and the byways to be soul winners. The harvest truly is great. The world is ready to be reached for the Lord. It could be by the street, the internet or the radio. But here he wants the 70 to go out. But before they go out, he is telling them, and vicariously us, that we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labourers into his harvest. He wants people to be saved. If you are born again, and if you are not a soul winner, something is wrong with you. Just picture this for a moment, if you will. Imagine arriving at the judgment seat of Christ, and one of the first questions the Lord asks you is, who have you brought with you? And you look at the Lord and you say, well, no one, Lord, just myself. Just imagine the shame that you will feel. You see, your salvation is one thing, saved by your faith in the precious blood of Christ. But your service is something else. And your service will decide whether or not you go into the millennial kingdom. So get busy for the Lord. Verse 3. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the labourer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. 
and into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazon! Woe unto thee, Bathsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Verses 3 down to 16 expands even more on chapter 9. Don't go from house to house. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses, here the Lord Jesus Christ wanted them to go to certain houses. Verse 9, heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Very much in reference to the Messiah on the earth at this point in time. 7. The labourer is worthy of his hire. It could be in reference to an evangelist who goes out full time by faith, expecting the Lord to provide for him. Not a one man paid Protestant priest, as I like to call them, but an evangelist. Or in today's world, a ministry. He quotes Sodom in verse 12 and Bathsaida in verse 13, along with Tyre and Sidon. And says in verse 14, how it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Because quite simply, the Lord is on the earth at this point in time. These towns, these cities were far more accountable to him than those other cities were. Capernaum 15, which was exalted to heaven, because that was the base of the Lord Jesus Christ, shalt be thrust down to hell, because he lived among them. 16. He that heareth you, heareth me. The apostles, the seventy, were sent out by the Messiah. If their message was heard, the Lord was glorified. If their message was not heard, the Lord was not glorified, and in reality he was despised, because he sent the seventy, and the apostles to preach to them. Today, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, and you witness to person A, B, or C, and they reject it, they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And in essence, they have despised him and his message. But one thing you cannot miss from these verses is how this advanced party had the sign gifts. The Jews require a sign, and the Jews are entitled to a sign. The seventy had the authority and the ability to heal the sick, and no doubt cast out devils, if it was necessary. Also they were given the ability and the authority to preach as well. As I say, Luke chapter 10 expands on Luke chapter 9, and yet this ministry, this sending out of the 70 and the 12, was a one-off. It never happened before, and it never happened again. 17. 
and the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. There's power in the name of Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bend, every tongue will confess. To be baptized in the name of Jesus, Acts chapter 2, means with the authority of Jesus, a new believer can be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's power in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, a group of Jews were trying to do an exorcism and it failed miserably. And the devils said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And these devils attacked these Jewish evangelists because they did not know what they were up against. They did not know who the Lord Jesus Christ was. One more time, there is power in the name of Jesus. And here the devils are subject to the name of Jesus. Look at verse 18. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He protected his flock right up until the end. In John chapter 18, they came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And they all fell backwards, all 600 of them. Why was that done? To protect the apostles. They came for Jesus, not the apostles. And he said, I am. And they all fell backwards. In reference to his deity, and also in reference to the fact that they could not touch his apostles. The everlasting father here is looking over his flock one more time. Also from 19, he says, I give you power over the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. This kind of mirrors the 144,000 Jewish male virgin witnesses in the great tribulation. And they too will be protected. The water is going to be poisoned during the great tribulation. And they will be able to drink the water, which will be contaminated and not die. And we found that very clearly prophesied in Mark chapter 16. But he wants to move the apostles and the 70 on from the fact that Satan and his minions are in submission to them. Because he says in verse 20, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven, in reference to their salvation. And some people are not sure as to when the apostles and the 70 were saved. I believe they were saved pre-Acts chapter 2. And this verse makes it very clear that they were. But by Acts chapter 2, they have received the Holy Spirit in reference to being anointed and to do many more miracles, signs and wonders. But their salvation, I believe, is affirmed here in verse 20. Your names, plural, are written in heaven. In that they should rejoice. 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, in reference, of course, to the apostles and the seventy. He did not reveal his ministry to Herod, Pilate, or Caiaphas, or any of the elites in Jerusalem. He revealed himself and his ministry to the apostles, which for the most part were lower middle-class fishermen. 22. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him, 
Once again, the Lord is affirming how he had decided to reveal himself and his ministry to the apostles and to the seventy, in reference, of course, to service, not salvation per se. 23. And he turned him unto his disciples, and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Perhaps David, perhaps Solomon, perhaps Abraham. And he says those kings, those leaders, wanted, they desired, to see those things which ye, all of you, have seen and heard, in reference, of course, to his ministry as a son of man on the earth. But from these men they would go out to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel. Calvinism teaches that God has chosen a group of people before the foundation of the earth to be saved. And those people alone have been atoned for. That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here. He chose the apostles and the seventy to experience his ministry. This is not in reference to salvation, but in reference to service. And just in reference to the seventy and the twelve. The apostles and the seventy were a group of one-off gentlemen. When they died, nobody replaced them. They were eyewitnesses of the majesty of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sign gifts died with them. 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. This was also asked in Acts chapter 16, and the response from Paul differs slightly from the response from the Lord Jesus. But let's continue on. 26. He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Now, of course, keeping the law could not save you. The Old Testament saints could not keep the law. And in Acts chapter 15, the apostles made it very clear how they too could not keep the law. Christ came to set us free from the law. He came to fulfill the law. So what is the Lord doing here? He is simply using the law to show this man that he is a sinner and cannot save himself by keeping the law. Also keep in mind, this is a Jew under the law, speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant hasn't yet been initiated. In Acts chapter 16, when the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself, Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe, receive, call, trust. These words are all synonymous in reference to being saved. But above all, believe in your heart that Christ died for your sins and after three days God resurrected him from the dead but look at 29 but he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus and who is my neighbor once again these people aren't really interested in the Lord or his message and we saw that very clearly from Herod who was very keen to meet Jesus and this lawyer from the temple one of the brains, one of the scholars, one of the elite, is wanting to trip up the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Lord's patience was remarkable, and yes, at times he did rip, and he chastised these individuals. Not the average man or woman in the street, but always the priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and on this occasion, a lawyer. But the analogy that the Lord chooses over the next few verses demonstrates his love for this man. 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto them, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbour unto him that fell among the thieves? What a great question, what a great analogy. And here he demonstrates a Samaritan steps in to the equation and shames the Levite and the priest. We saw it in the last chapter, how the apostle James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven to consume the Samaritans. And here the Lord once again has turned their hostility, perhaps, their indifference, perhaps, of the Samaritans into a blessing and a great analogy. Look at 37. And he said, He that shewed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Faith without works is dead, and works without faith is dead as well. Go, and do thou likewise. Your neighbour is everyone. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and love thy neighbour as thyself. 38. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were greatly beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 focus very much on homes. In chapter 9, the Lord told us how he had nowhere to lay his head. He was a travelling rabbi. And yet the popes of Rome today are many Protestant evangelists and pastors live in castles, mansions, great estates. They have two or three cars. They go on holiday four or five times a year. They are extremely wealthy. And yet Paul told us to let our moderation be known unto all men. But here the Lord has arrived at the house of Martha and her sister Mary. And the latter part of 39 in reference to Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, heard his word. Humility, and it's beautiful. Verse 40. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him, and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered, and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful, and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. 
Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, whereas Martha was out and about doing many works. Working for the Lord is one thing, reading the word of God is something else altogether. He loved both these sisters with the same love, but one was more in tune with the ministry and the will of the Lord. The word of God is more important than activities. Reading the scriptures is more important than doing works for the Lord. If you're not holy within, you won't be holy without. He's not condemning Martha per se, but he is commending Mary in the sense that she hath chosen the good part. The word of God, reading it, studying it, and then walking in the spirit. Whereas Martha, as I say, was more conscious. She was more aware. She was more interested about doing works. And again, if you're not holy within, you won't be holy without. So just before I conclude Luke chapter 10, I want to go back to verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. By chance? Calvinists would have you believe that the Lord God of the Bible preordains everything. All of the evil in the world is down to him. Nothing happens by chance. And yet here the Lord said, and by chance. Things do happen in this world that are not related directly to the Lord God of the Bible. Yes, he allows men to do their thing, to go their own way, and to sin as they choose. But he will always use that sin for his own glory. The scribes and the Pharisees conspired to put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He knew that was going to happen, of course, back in eternity, and he allowed it to continue. He allowed them to do what they did in order to bring forth good. So yes, the Lord does allow evil to flourish, and he does use evil to fulfill his greater purpose for us. But he does not ordain evil per se. But 31 really is interesting to me, because it shows me that things do happen by chance. And yet saying that, I will say this, that the Lord is behind everything, and he can and does use events, which sometimes we can't grasp. But according to Romans chapter 8, all things happen for those that love him, that are the called according to his purpose. But this man, by chance, went down from Jerusalem and found a man, stripped and lying in the gutter. And the Samaritan was commended. And I showed you earlier how James and John, almost, perhaps, with a touch of racism, didn't quite like the Samaritans. They were a half-breed group of people. But the Lord cites this Samaritan and he commends them to this self-righteous lawyer. Next up, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. This piece of scripture is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But as far as I am concerned, the Lord's Prayer is found very clearly in John chapter 17. As far as I am concerned, this should really be called the Disciples' Prayer. Verse 2. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive every one that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Several points to flag up from verses 2 down to 3, 
our father, found in verse 2. The Lord Jesus Christ was a Jew, speaking to his Jewish disciples, who were all living under the Jewish law. God was not your father if you were not a Jew at this point in time. Please turn to Malachi chapter 2. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Have we, the Jews, not all one father? Yes, we, the Jews, have only one father. At this point in time, of course. Hath not we, the Jews, have one God who created us? Yes, we, the Jews, at this point in time, had one God who created us. If you're not a Jew at this point in time, you're outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul told us how we were outside of God's covenant. We had no hope. We were completely cut off. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But Christ has knocked down the middle wall of partition, and he's drawn all Jews and Gentiles unto him. And those of us which have believed on him can call God our Father. Please turn back to Luke chapter 11, verse 2, one more time. When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven. When ye, all of you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven. But now, if you have been born again, God the Father lives within you, as does God the Son, as does God the Holy Ghost. So here, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about the Father, who is still in heaven, not living within you, if you have been born again. When ye pray, all of you, say, Our Father, not my Father, but our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Thy kingdom come, the kingdom of God is physical and spiritual. At this point in time, no one was in the spiritual kingdom of heaven, and no one was in the physical kingdom of heaven. So this prayer is very much in reference to post the crucifixion. Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Very much in reference, I believe, to the second coming, the new Jerusalem. He will rule and reign from the new Jerusalem, and his will will be done in the new Jerusalem and also in the new earth. Spiritually speaking, of course, we can still use these verses for today, and we can still pray that his will will be done in our lives and those around us. But really, to be quite honest with you, I believe these verses are in reference to the Davidic kingdom, the second coming of Christ. Three, give us day by day our daily bread. Physical food, perhaps, but also spiritual food. He, Jesus, is a bread of life. We eat from him. We feed from him. We get our life from him. And he gave us his life. He gave us his body on the cross. So technically, this verse is still very much in reference to his death and also his second coming. But you can take these verses and apply them still in a spiritual sense. We still feed on him spiritually, and we still need him to provide for us. But the chances are he's already done so. We just have to get off our backsides and go off and work to receive the food that he has given us. For, and forgive us our sins. He already has, by his death on the cross. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. We do, because we have been saved. And if we don't, then according to First John chapter 1, we lose fellowship with God, not our salvation, and the latter part from verse 4, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That can stay today, that can still be applicable, but ultimately he has already saved us from evil. He has delivered us from temptation when he hung on the cross. 
Also Paul told us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 how he, the Lord, would not allow us to be tempted above what we could endure. So these verses, as far as I am concerned, are primarily for the Jewish disciples living under the law. And they will have a much greater impact, I believe, during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Verse 5. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Faith without works is dead, and works without faith is dead as well. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. This is the golden rule. It's so simple, it's common sense. And once again, the Lord is demonstrating some very simplistic analogies, examples to his Jewish disciples. They were children for many years, and the Lord, as their everlasting father, took the time to be with them and to teach them and to build them up. And they too would do the same vicariously to their disciples. Verse 9. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh it shall be opened. Verses 9 and 10 are primarily building up to the plan of salvation. And yet at the same time this picture is very much praying in the will of the Father to have the will of the Lord done. Found very clearly in verses 2, 3 and 4. Verse 11. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? It's building up, of course, to the new birth. If you ask for the Holy Ghost, you will receive the Holy Ghost. Also from 13, if ye then, being evil, ye being, all of you, being evil, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of you have been born in original sin. All of you are evil pre the new birth. And the reference here to Heavenly Father goes back to verse 2. Our Father, which art in heaven. Our Father as the Jewish Lord, as the Jewish Father, as the Jewish God. How much more shall your Heavenly Father, in reference to the people of Israel, Give the Holy Spirit to them, the Jewish people, that ask him. This is still very much the Lord speaking to the Jews under the law. The new covenant hasn't yet officially been initiated. But the Heavenly Father, spoken of here, will give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him. And we can take these verses today and apply these spiritually to people wanting to be saved. But first of all, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you've believed on him, then you receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 14. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. 
there's a picture of the unpardonable sin, found very clearly in Mark chapter 3, to suggest, to insinuate, that the Lord Jesus Christ did his miracles through Satan was the unpardonable sin, applicable to the time of Christ, but not, as far as I am concerned, applicable to anyone living today. Look at verse 16, and others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. How many more signs do these people need to see? He walked on water. He cast out devils. He gave sight to the blind. He resurrected the dead. What more do these people need in order to believe? Verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub, Satan, of course, is not going to cast out devils in order to somehow get all of the glory. It makes no sense. But the Lord Jesus Christ, as a second member of the Godhead, is going to cast out unclean spirits right up until the resurrection. Verse 19. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. The apostles were the sons of Israel, and they too will be judging the people of Israel at the great white throne judgment. This term for Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. These people had the audacity to claim that the Lord Jesus Christ was casting out devils thanks to Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, who of course is Satan. And this shows one more time just how depraved, just how far gone the people of Israel had really gone. Hence why the Lord spoke in parables on so many occasions. Verse 20 but if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. The finger of God, in reference to his deity, the handwriting was on the wall, in reference to his deity. The kingdom of God needs a king, and the king, of course, is Jesus Christ. But once again, the people of Israel, for the most part, were blinded, foretold in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armour, wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. You are either with the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are not. You are either born again, or you are not. You cannot sit on the wall and give him lip service. You either believe on him, and trust him, and follow him, or you do not, and if you are against him, you remain an enemy of his. Verse 24. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house, whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in, and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Here the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the dangers of being set free from unclean spirits and then not going on to be saved. Once an unclean spirit has left you, the Holy Spirit must reside in you almost straight away. Otherwise, unclean spirits can come back and take their abode within you. And your state will be seven times worse than it was pre being set free 
from an unclean spirit. But I believe this analogy really is in reference to Israel as a nation. Please jump over to Luke chapter 13 and take a look at verse 35. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Here the Lord has now turned from the nation of Israel, and until they see him at the second advent, and say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, they will not know him or receive him. Therefore Israel, as far as I am concerned, at least religious Israel, as far as I am concerned, is now indwelt with unclean spirits. Please turn back to Luke chapter 11. Look at 24 one more time. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, the man here represents Israel. He walketh through dry places, seeking rest. Christ is our rest, of course. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house, whence I came out. The house of Israel, the house of Moses, the house of the Lord. Very much in reference to Israel. 25. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. By the death on the cross, everything has been put right. And now the Lord is waiting for Israel to receive him. 26. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. We are legion. These unclean spirits go around in numbers. They go around in a pack. They're like a gang of unclean spirits. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. In reference to religious Israel. Since the fall of Israel around 70 AD, Israel has not been in the will of God. Since 70 AD, the people of Israel have been outside of the will of God. As far as the land is concerned, they are still very much beloved of the Lord. Every war that Israel has fought since 1948 has been won, because the land given to the Jews is unconditional. When Jesus Christ comes back to earth, he's going to go to Jerusalem. Not London, not Washington, and not Rome. He's going to go to Jerusalem. Hence why the Jews are now safely back in the land of Israel. But religious Israel, so-called Judaism, as far as I'm concerned, according to these verses, is now indwelt by unclean spirits. Hence why their prayers are not going to be answered. But when it comes to the land of Israel, they are still very much safe in the land of Israel. And we that are born again must love them, pray for them, and if we can, make them jealous so that they will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27. And it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. He's more interested in you keeping the word of God than he is you worshipping his mother, the so-called Queen of Heaven. This, I believe, is a prophetic rebuke against Mary worship. And he says so clearly, yea, yes, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Mary plays no part in your salvation or in your growth as a Christian. He wants you to hear the word of God and keep it, pure and simple. Verse 29, and when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father 
give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. These two verses make it very clear how the Lord Jesus Christ was not a man pleaser. He spoke his mind. All this meek and mild Jesus is a fable. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. An evil generation, if ye then being evil, how can you miss it? Unless you are born again, you are evil and you are outside of the kingdom of God. God is angry with the wicked every day. He hates all workers of iniquity. And yet at the same time, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. So his love is very much conditional on you believing on his son. But 29, he's in the thick of it. 29, he's speaking to the people. And 29, he is quoting, he is referring to Jonas, the prophet, who was sent to the Gentiles to call them to repent. Here once again, an analogy is about to take place. Verse 30, for as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah was a Jew sent to the Gentiles, and they believed his message. Jesus, as a Jew, going to the people of Israel, did not believe his message. And the terrible consequences of this are found very clearly in verse 31. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Once again affirming his deity, he's greater than a temple, he's Lord of the Sabbath, and here he is greater than Solomon. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. He's now greater than Jonah. He always affirmed his deity, even in the midst of unbelief and hostility and hatred. Greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than Muhammad, greater than Buddha, greater than Mary, greater than a Pope, greater than anyone that ever went before him or ever came after him. So take all these verses together, we find unclean spirits inhabiting the house of Israel. Hence why they could not believe on him. The Apostle Peter said, save yourself from this perverse generation. Jews are still being saved. Many were saved on the day of Pentecost. But for the most part, they've been blinded. And they remain in perpetual blindness, even to this present day. Verse 33. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it on a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the lights. Picturing, of course, your salvation and your testimony to the world. Let your light so shine before men. Verse 34. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, have no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Be careful what you set before your eyes, because what you see can result in you lusting, and then sinning, and then falling from grace. Verse 37. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marvelled that he had not first washed before dinner. This is a ceremonial washing. Of course, the Lord would have washed his hands before sitting down to eat. But this Pharisee is a hypocrite. 
This Pharisee is a lost sinner. This Pharisee is like the one found in the previous chapter in reference to the man that fell by the wayside and was left for dead. 12,000 priests were at the temple at this time in the Lord's ministry and not one of those priests went to the aid of the man that was left for dead. But a Samaritan went and aided that sick individual. And that pictures the Lord's ministry turning from Israel to the church, turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. And here the Lord has been asked by a Pharisee to have dinner with him in his house. And the Lord, ever obliging, went in to meet this Pharisee, hoping to present the plan of salvation to this self-righteous individual. Verse 39. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of raving and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Of course he did. What he made internally, he made externally as well. But this is a heart problem, not a head problem. These people were dead from within. These people were self-righteous. These people wanted to be seen and greeted and revered in the marketplaces. And in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord Jesus told us how they have already had their reward, as of all false disciples, all false Bible believers, which go around wanting to be seen and heard by the ignorant masses. They've already had their reward. Verse 41, But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. He is now reprimanding the religious fathers of his day. Meek and mild Jesus? I don't think so. Here he is taking his people to task because he knows their hearts, his omniscient, and they must have been stunned listening to the man from Galilee ripping them apart. These men were revered by the people. These men were looked up to by the people. But the Lord is cutting them down, a picture of the great white throne judgment. Verse 45. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying thou approachest us also. You bet it did. Here the Lord Jesus Christ despises these men in organised religion. These men which have made a living off the backs of hard-working, everyday people. He was baptised by a second cousin in the River Jordan. Caiaphas, the high priest, played no part whatsoever in the Lord's baptism, in the Lord's public arrival, his public proclamation to the people of Israel. He played no part in that whatsoever. The Lord Jesus Christ completely bypassed organised religion. And it's going to happen again at the second coming. He's going to bypass organised religion completely. Priests, vicars, pastors, deacons, superintendents are going to play no part whatsoever at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people had no idea who he was when he first came. And most people were not even ready for the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to happen again at the second coming of Christ. Most people will have no idea who the Lord Jesus Christ is or what his second coming is even about until it's too late. Verse 46. And he said, 
Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Do as I say, not as I do. This is hypocrisy with a capital H. And once again, the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with this head on. He is setting the example. You are told to mark those out which preach another gospel and warn others about them. And you are told to sharply rebuke heretics, false teachers, because their teaching can become poisonous and it can contaminate many people if you're not careful. Verse 47. Woe unto you, for ye built the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers. For they indeed killed them, and ye built the sepulchres. What a sting and rebuke. He's now pointing back to the Old Testament, and he's saying your fathers killed the prophets and built the sepulchres in reference to honouring the slain and dead. Hypocrisy. Your fathers killed them, and yet you have now built sepulchres to remember the men which your fathers vicariously killed. This is incredible. Verse 49. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. And from 30 AD to 70 AD, the Lord allowed the clock to start ticking. He gave them 40 years to get the house in order. And 70 AD, the clock stopped ticking and the judgment fell. The Romans came and surrounded the temple. We have no king but Caesar and their king arrived and destroyed the temple. And that old expression, you get what you ask for, was very much applicable to the Jews living in 70 AD. We have no king but Caesar, and their king turned on them and destroyed them. A picture of the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. He will sign a treaty with them, and then he will turn on them. He wore an egg on the treaty and destroyed them. Verse 52. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. He is now going to blame the lawyers for hindering those that were going to believe on the Lord, entering in to the kingdom of God. And this is very much in reference to false teachers today. They too can hinder people coming to the Lord, and here the Lord is going to hold them accountable. The key of knowledge, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door to heaven. And the key, of course, is a metaphor for entrance to heaven via the Lord Jesus Christ. These lawyers should have known better. These lawyers were the scribes, the Pharisees. These lawyers were the brains, the academics of their generation. But they hated him. They despised him, as their fathers did back in the Old Testament to the prophets and the kings. What goes around comes around, and the Lord has decided that he is going to use this generation as an example to future generations. He's going to punish this generation because they are far more accountable to the light that heaven gave them than their fathers were before them. Because Jesus Christ, of course, has come from heaven to preach, to teach, and to die for their sins and for the sins of the world. But they could not receive him. They would not receive him through unbelief. Foretold in the Old Testament and found very clearly here in Luke chapter 11. And again, unclean spirits play a part, I believe, in their unbelief. Verse 53. And as he said these things unto them, 
the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. They hated him without a cause, and he came for them nevertheless. He preached to them nevertheless. He died for them nevertheless. So what started back in verse 2 of chapter 11, praying for the kingdom to come, has now been rejected at the end of chapter 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Jews are now temporarily outside of the will of God, but we the Gentiles, we the church, have been grafted in. And for here and now, the church age, we are his people, and we pray for Israel to believe and receive the Messiah as their King and Lord. Next up, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when there was gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He's still seething from the last verses from chapter 11, how they were laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth. These people were really despicable. They were the worst of the worst. They'd been scored, they'd been educated in the highest realms of Judaism, but their hearts were far from the Lord. In Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men came to Jerusalem, Herod sought out the scribes, the lawyers, the academics, and he asked them where was a Messiah to be born, and they told him, Bethlehem. But they did not go with the wise men to worship the Jewish Messiah. They stayed with Herod, a type of the Antichrist, of course. And here these Pharisees, these scribes, are now being condemned once again. The Lord never minced his words, and like I said last time, this myth of Jesus being meek and mild is almost laughable. And like I said last time, we are to rebuke false teachers. The Lord did it here, and we are to do the same. Verse 2, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Whatever you have done in your life will not go unpunished. If you are not born again, one day everything that you have done will be revealed. All these unsaved dictators that beat the rap, as they say, will one day stand in the presence of Almighty God. And they too will be judged. Every thought, word and deed will be judged. Nothing will escape the omniscient mind and eye of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. All these secret societies meet in darkness, and they do their deeds in darkness, and they curse those that would speak out against their secret societies, their secret codes, their secret rituals. But the Lord says one more time, that which ye have spoken in the ears in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So every evil deed that has been done in secret and in darkness shall be revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be proclaimed upon the housetops, meaning your private sins will one day be made public. You'll be publicly shamed at the great white throne judgment. Every sin, every thought, every deed that you have ever done in secret, he has seen and he will reveal it publicly at the great white throne judgment. And you will want the ground beneath you to swallow you up. But first of all, you will have to be judged in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father and his holy angels. Verse 4 And I say unto you, my friends, 
be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Fear God. Here the Lord once again doesn't mince his words. He says, fear God. Not just reverential fear, but shake, tremble in his presence. And shake and tremble when you handle his word. The Bible, of course. One more time. Fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. He kills and he maketh alive. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Verse 4, he is speaking to his friends. Quite possibly the disciples and vicariously the people. Verse 1, that have gathered together in an innumerable number of people. A great multitude of people. Like I said last time, hundreds if not thousands followed him. And hundreds if not thousands were healed by him. But by Acts chapter 1, only 120 people were in the upper room with the apostles and the disciples and the closest friends that he had. 120 people remained with him right up until the end. Also from verse 4, he says, Be not afraid of them that kill the body. Don't fear man. The fear of man bringeth a snare. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mankind, if you are saved, can only do so much to you in reference to damaging you or harming you or even killing you. But you really should be in fear of the Lord because he has allowed all things to happen to you, whether good or evil, and he will allow all these things to come into your life to grow you, to strengthen you, so you can be a blessing to others and so you can understand the holiness of the Lord God of the Bible. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God. He even knows the stars, he counts the stars, he knows everything. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipotent. Verse 7, But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Mankind is made in the image of God. Those of us which have been born again are the most important individuals. In the creation of the universe. We are greatly beloved. Because we have been born again. But here you find very clearly how man. Is greater than the sparrows. Mankind is greater. Than the animal kingdom. Verse 8. And I say unto you. Whosoever shall confess me before men. Him shall the son of man also confess. Before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men. Shall be denied before the angels of God. In reference to a person getting saved. And going on to witness to other people. We have all been called to fulfill the great commission. But also, this is in reference to those that refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These cowards which refuse to bend the knee. And he says here in verse 9, Those that deny me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Making it very clear how there is going to be a hell. There is going to be a judgment. Only a few people from creation to the end of the world are going to be saved. Most people from creation to the end of the world are not going to be saved. This dream, this myth, this fable of people going to heaven when they die that have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ is a dreadful heresy. Here the Lord Jesus Christ makes it very clear how he will deny those that have denied him before men. Meaning very clearly one more time, those that refuse to bend the knee and believe on him 
are going to be denied in the presence of the holy angels. Verse 10. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. In reference to the unpardonable sin, found very clearly in Mark chapter 3. Those unsaved, wicked, infidels, known as the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, the academics, blasphemed the Lord Jesus Christ. They declared to the people that all of his miracles were done thanks to Satan, thanks to the prince of the flies, Beelzebub. And he said, if you claim these miracles to Satan, if you believe these miracles have been done in the name of Satan, that is the unpardonable sin. And that can never be forgiven in this life or in the next life to come. Verse 11. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. This is pretty much in reference to the apostles, I believe, that were going to face great persecution. Synagogue, Jewish, magistrates, Gentiles. The apostle Paul found himself throughout most of his life being interrogated for following the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles were also going to be grilled for following the Lord Jesus Christ, found of course in the book of Acts. He's speaking to the apostles as an exclusive group of individuals. The apostles were one-off group of gentlemen. The apostles were equipped and chosen and skilled because they were a unique group of individuals. They couldn't be duplicated and they were never replaced. So here the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, is speaking primarily to the apostles. Take no thought what's going to happen for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. And yet at the same time, I will say this, that we as Bible-believing Christians living in the 21st century should know the law of the lands where we live. We should know what we can and cannot do. And we should certainly know the word of God inside out. So if we ever find ourselves standing in the presence of a magistrate, we too will know how to handle ourselves and we too will know what to say in that hour. Verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Hey man, what's he got to do with me? The King James Bible was very true to the original Greek autographs written in Koine Greek. The King James Bible has been as true as is possible to translating a literal word-by-word -word translation. The Koine Greek New Testament written in the first century reflected the language of everyday people. And the Lord Jesus Christ spoke the language of everyday people. He didn't live in palaces. He didn't wear long garments. He wasn't called Holy Father. He was an everyday man. He lived and breathed and died with everyday people. He was accessible to everyday people. He spoke the language of everyday people. Unlike some of these popes, unlike some of these Protestant pastors and evangelists and leaders of these apostate churches, he lived, he walked, and he existed with everyday people. Verse 15. And he said unto them, Take heed, and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. There's more to life than wealth and prosperity. The richest man in the grave will leave it all behind. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money per se is not evil, but the love of money is evil. And I'll say this if I may. 
The Lord Jesus Christ had nothing. The apostles, for the most part, had nothing. They lived almost hand to hand, day by day. They trusted on the Lord to provide for them, and he did. Wealthy Christians would do well to spend their money wisely. The Apostle Paul told us to make your moderation be made known to all men. Live a simple life if you can. The more money you have will cause you problems. But if you can live simply, you'll be happier for the most part. But above all, what you have now is only temporary. Focus on the kingdom of God. Focus on being a soul winner and focus on being content with little, not more. Verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be, which thou hast provided? Good question. You've worked all your life, you've saved up all of your life, and then one day the Lord is going to call you home. If you're saved, to heaven. If you're not saved, to hell. But whose will these things be? which thou hast provided. Verse 21. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Your heart should be focused on the things of the Lord. If you can support a frontline ministry, that soul winning for the Lord, go for it. If you can do it yourself, go for it as well. If you can travel overseas to support a mission field, go for it. But above all, do something for the Lord. Verse 22. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. The apostles were provided right up until they died. If you are born again, he will provide for you right up until you die. That does not mean you sit back and do nothing. The Lord always blesses those that are out and about their father's business. He expects you to help yourself, and then he will help you to help yourself. But above all, you must be doing something for him to do something for you. Verse 24. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taken thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Stop worrying. Let the Lord be the Lord. He will provide for you. He already has done by dying on the cross. Feed us day by day. Give us our daily bread. He's already done it. To the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will feed you physically if you get up and work. If you cannot work, that's something else altogether. But above all, he wants you to stop worrying. And he wants you to rely on him to provide for you. What a wonderful, loving merciful saviour that we have he went through everything that we ever went through he understands totally our infirmities and weaknesses he too lived the life that we are living but his life was sinless whereas our life is very sinful he came to save us from our sins he was without sin we are not without sin but at the same time he understands everything that we go through 
on a daily basis, because he too went through it himself 2,000 plus years ago. Verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you, that Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more would he clothe you? O ye of little faith, and seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. The nations of the world seek after these things, unsaved men and women, and he's saying, forget those people. Your father knows what you have need of, even before you ask him. But rather seek ye, all of you, the kingdom of God, in reference to being saved, and in reference to being provided for, via the Lord God of the Bible. Because all of these things, without exception, shall be added unto you. Not in reference to being healthy and wealthy all of the time. As I said last time, the Apostle Paul and Peter and John and Andrew had very little. The Lord Jesus Christ had nowhere to lay his head. But the Lord God of the Bible will always provide for you. He knows what you need and he will give it to you. No more and no less. And the last part of verse 28. O ye of little faith. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is giving a very mild and loving and gentle rebuke. O ye of little faith, all of you are of little faith. Our God can do all things. Our God can do whatever he chooses to do. He spoke through a donkey. He allowed Satan to speak through a snake. He walked on water. He can do whatever he chooses to do. And sometimes the simplicity of Christ is lost on his own people. And he says one more time, O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Why don't you trust me? What I say I will do, and what I promise I will fulfill. And verse 30, in reference to the nations seeking after these things, even they are given blessings and provender. Even the unsaved people are blessed, according to Matthew chapter 5. He makes the sun go up and down on unsaved people. He even provides food for unsaved people. So if he can provide these things for unsaved people, how much more is he going to do? For those of us which have sought the kingdom of God and have continued to go on with the king on a day-by-day -day basis. The sky is the limit, as they say. But for the Lord God of the Bible to bless us, to give us what we need, we have to be saved. We have to be walking in the Spirit. And above all, what we do has to be in the will of God. He won't give us what's not in his will to give us. Sometimes our prayers go amiss because we don't know what to be praying for. But according to Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit prays for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, as does the Lord Jesus Christ as our High Priest. So stop worrying and let God be God. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants all men to be saved. He's called all men to repent. He's granted everlasting life to everyone without exception. But only those that appropriate the atonement, only those that believe on him, are going to be saved. Don't fear, don't worry, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I showed you last time how the father here 
is in reference to Israel. Before you got saved, he wasn't your father. Before you got saved, he wasn't even your God. You were at enmity in your mind through wicked works when it came to your understanding of the Lord God of the Bible. So take verses 31 and 32 together. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Get saved, and the Lord God will do everything else. Fear not, don't worry, little flock, and vicariously all saved people, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's going to save you, and he is going to give you all those things that you want, if and when it's his will to do so. So stop worrying, trust in him, and one more time let God be God. Verse 33, sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags, which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He wants the apostles to forsake everything and follow him. And they did. Levi did so. Peter and Andrew did so, as did James and John. They forsook all and followed him. And here he wants his apostles to sell everything that they have in order for him, the Lord God, to provide for them. This is very much a call to surrender. The just shall live by faith. Faith for your salvation and here faith in the Lord God of the Bible to provide for his disciples and apostles and all those that were going to follow him whithersoever he went. Please allow me to say the following before we move on to verse 35. These verses, of course, are aimed doctrinally to the people of Israel under the law. So for those of us living today, we take these verses in a spiritual way. Yes, he wanted the apostles to grow and understand and apply these verses to their lives. Because he is speaking to them at this point in time, pre the new covenants. And Matthew 5 to 8 outlines what is going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ. So his audience here is primarily the apostles and their associates. Fast forward to the millennial reign of Christ. These verses will be applied literally to all subjects of the kingdom. But for here and now, those of us living in the church age, these verses must be taken in a spiritual way, not a literal physical way. He's not calling on all of us to forsake everything. Because Paul told us, if we don't provide for our own families, we are worse than infidels. So please be cautious when you approach these verses. Verse 35. Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Be ready for the Lord's return. This is not in reference to the rapture, but to the second coming of Christ. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself, and make them to sit down to meat, and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? 
Here the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as I am concerned, is speaking about the second coming of Christ, not the rapture of the church. And yet saying that, please allow me to say this. Those of us living today in the church age that are born again must be ready to go to be with the Lord at a moment's notice. Yes, he's speaking primarily about the second coming. Yes, he's speaking primarily about those living in the great tribulation. But I still think we can take these verses and apply them spiritually to those of us living today in the church age. Be ready for his return because we don't know when he's going to come back. And keep our testimonies clean so we can receive a full reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But Peter says to him in verse 41, Speakest thou this parable unto us, the disciples, or even to all the people without exception? And this demonstrates one more time how the apostle Peter was not infallible. None of the apostles were infallible. Only Jesus Christ is infallible, and only the word of God is infallible too. The apostles were not infallible. No one is infallible, just the Lord Jesus Christ and the written word of God. Verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men-servants and maidens, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day, when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Here we find the consequences of false converts, carnal Christians, and ignorant Christians. In verse 46, this is speaking of a false convert. In 47, this is speaking of a carnal Christian. And in verse 48, this is also speaking of a Christian, but this Christian is ignorant, and as such the punishment varies. Also verse 46 pictures a false convert being condemned at the great white throne judgment, whereas verses 47 and 48 picture saved people being publicly chastised and beaten at the judgment seat of Christ. Your salvation is not the issue here. Your service is the issue here. So as they say, ignorance is no excuse of the law. And ignorance of the word of God is no excuse either. Verse 49. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I, if it be already kindled? This is a literal fire at the second coming of Christ. This is not in reference to speaking in tongues, so-called, or being slain in the Spirit. This is the meek and mild Jesus, so-called, coming back at the end of the tribulation to burn this earth, to destroy this earth, to turn it upside down, to waste it, as they say. Verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? This is not in reference to his water baptism, found in Matthew chapter 3. This is in reference to his death on the cross. He became a sin offering for us. 
He that knew no sin became sin for us. Verse 51. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, three against two, and two against three. Chapter 2 verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Peace between God and man through the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But chapter 12, verse 51, he hasn't come to bring peace to the earth, but rather division in reference to service. It's going to cost you something to follow him. Five people in one house, three against two, and two against three. The call to serve the Lord Jesus Christ will cost you something. Verse 53, the father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A divided family is very painful, and the Lord Jesus Christ knew what this meant. He knew what this felt like to be living in a divided family. His own brethren for many years did not believe on him, and his mother failed many times to grasp the enormity of a son's ministry. Verse 54. And he said also to the people, When ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, There cometh a shower, and so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, There will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? They could see what's happening in the skies around them, but they could not see what's happening right under their very noses. He that has eyes to see, let him see, and he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 58. When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence, that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, Thou shalt not depart thence, till thou hast paid the very last mite. These verses are not in reference to purgatory, because in purgatory you are expected to have a third party pray for you. These verses are in reference to a Jew finding himself arrested and held in detention, and he and he alone has to pay a mite in verse 59, to be let out, to be set free. But these verses are really an expansion from chapter 6. Verses 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31. Very much in reference to the Jews under the law. Somebody smiteth thee, 29, turn the other cheek. If somebody wants your cloak, forbid him not. It's the same sort of language here. And also this is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 8. But purgatory, as far as a Catholic is concerned, these verses are not. Next up, Luke chapter 13.